0: Today's guest is Dave Calvin. He's an expert in quality assurance and food safety. He's a great example of how you can have a prolific career in the food industry and not get stuck in just one food product. He's worked in many products such as soup, pickles, baby food, cereal, and snack foods, just to name a few. All are Fortune 500 companies. We've known each other a long time and it shows. We had a lot of fun this episode and could have gone on for several more hours. Dave will probably be back to discuss more, most likely ice cream. Well, Dave, welcome Thank to, you. The, to our podcast. And we're anxious to hear everything about quality assurance, quality control, and food safety tonight. So how long have you been in the food industry?
1: Maureen, I've been in the food industry for 37 years. Wow. Yeah.
0: All right. So tell us how you got your start. Uh, did you go to college for this?
1: Yes, I I had a dream of being a large animal veterinarian. So I wanted to go to the Ohio State University and be a vet. And they um uh, organic chemistry and I didn't get along. <laughs> so one of the requirements of being a vet is you had to pass organic chemistry. I did fine on the labs, did fine on biochemistry, but couldn't do the memorization.
0: How many times did you try?
1: Three times.
0: Ooh, yeah.
1: That's a lot. Three times. It was a lot. <laughs>
0: Nobody gave you a free pass, huh? No
1: free pass. So I was, you know, I worked on a dairy farm when I was 14 years old. So I started thinking about going into dairy science and what I could do with dairy science or ag business. And then my uh, senior year, fall quarter, I'm in this big lecture hall, 300-some kids, food science 100. Yeah, okay. And uh, the lecture was great. Uh, And I, you know, worked on a dairy farm worked at grocery stores, um, you know, and this class just opened up my eyes to what I took for granted and everything that was going on in the food industry, how food's distributed, how countries in the world don't have enough food and how how do they get it, how do they manufacture it, how do they uh, trade for it, and it just opened up my eyes and I went to the food science department, and I talked to the the chairman of the department, and I said, hey, I I was in this lecture. It was really eye-opening for me, and I I said, what can I do with this degree? (laughs) He chuckled. He opens up. I'll never forget this. He opens up his drawer. He pulls out this laminated sheet of paper, and he goes, here's all the jobs that you can get in the food industry. And I was looking at this list, and he had national salaries next to it. Mm again, this is uh this is nineteen eighty five okay. And I'm like, "Oh my gosh, yeah, this is this is awesome. So I changed changed my major, and luckily, Ohio State had a, a pre-vet medicine food science curriculum. So basically, for the next uh, six quarters, we were still in quarters. I just took food science classes. I had everything else done.
0: So did delay your graduation?
1: Yeah, it delayed my graduation. I was supposed to graduate that spring of 85, and I, I graduated the spring of 86.
0: Okay. So, what was your first job in the food industry?
1: Well, outside of being on the dairy farm and working at the grocery stores, was a lab technician at Meadowgold Dairy in Westerville, Ohio. So, was testing milk trucks coming in and testing the uh, finished products that we were... It was a fluid milk plant and uh, pasteurized juices...
0: So, was your first job good, or was it like, uh...
1: Oh, it was fun. I It was lab testing, it was micro, uh, had to do some pest control, learned how to do that. It was very interesting.
0: So, then you spent the rest of your career in quality assurance.
1: Yes, I did. A lot of my friends took food science to be research mm-hmm. scientists, but I knew right away I wanted food science because I wanted to be in quality control. And the professor who's passed away, his name's Doctor Wilbur Gould. He was the big influence on my life. He was all about quality control. He wrote a book on quality assurance and quality control. Mm-hmm.
0: And what attracted you to it?
1: I guess just the fact that you know people go to the grocery stores and they don't really know what's behind the food mm-hmm. that that was made or how they're what they're purchasing, right? So. Mm-hmm. Quality control and and food safety for me was just assuring that when people do buy the food, it's, it's to the standards, you know, that people expect it's safe. Um, it's high quality that's what that, I I didn't have any interest in designing new foods. My interest was making sure the foods that were made were right and, and safe.
0: All right. So then where did you go after this job?
1: Well, that was during college. So then after I, I got my degree in food science. I was fortunately hired by the Campbell Soup Company and got to move back to where I grew up in Northwest Ohio. I started out as a food chemist at the one of the largest Campbell Soup plants in Napoleon, Ohio. Yeah,
0: I, I remember that. That's a really big plant. Big when plant. you when you say a big plant, tell us how big that
1: is. Well, it's mammoth. I mean, um, I can't remember how many square feet it is, but it had its own its own Water plant, fire department, <laughs> security, I mean, can plant. How warehouse? many hundreds of people? Oh, upwards of probably 2,000 people worked there Yeah, because we had the can plant. So we're talking each about warehouse. acres. Acres, yeah.
0: Acres. And they made canned soup.
1: They made everything. They made V8. They did fresh tomato season. They did soup. They did the Prego spaghetti sauce.
0: Okay. And what, did you, and what did you do for them?
1: So I started out as a food chemist, uh, worked in the lab, and in three years, I was promoted to lab manager. And those first three years, it was all about quality control, just ingredients coming in or in-process testing being done. People would bring samples up to the lab, and we would do all this testing. And then I'd say in about 19... 88, 89, we started looking at the Deming philosophy and how people need to control their own processes and how can we empower the employees on the floor to make decisions on the fly instead of waiting for a lab test. So there'd be people out on the production floor, right, making a product. They'd put their sample in a container. They'd ship it up a vacuum tube to the lab because the plant was so large. We'd test it. They'd have to wait for us to test it. We'd write the results down on a piece of paper and send it back down to like them. Like at the bank? <laughs> it was <just> like the bank. <laughs> the bank, okay. <laughs> we didn't have, I mean, we had computers, but back then we were just using Excel to capture data and manipulate data. We weren't really communicating. I mean, you call they Lotus. Didn't even,
0: they didn't even call you. They. You didn't Sometimes they called like the if they were in a
1: hurry and was tired of waiting, they'd call you or they'd come up. But I mean, we had lotus notes. That so was go it. back
0: to this deming thing. This is a this what's different about this again?
1: Well, so the deming philosophy was about getting people empowered to own their own process. So in this in this culture that we started to instill at Campbell's. We started teaching the employees more about their process. We built mini labs out on the production floor and taught them how to do some of these tests okay. so that they actually controlled the process. You know, viscosity was a big test for a lot of the tomato products and soup products. So it's a little instrument called a Bostwick. It looks like a trough with a gate at the end. And uh, we taught them how to do a Bostwick. We taught them how to do colors. We taught them how to do moisture. No,
0: viscosity is...
1: The thickness. Yeah. Yeah, the thickness so you of want, the product. you
0: want your tomato sauce to be or your tomato juice to be a certain thickness.
1: Exactly. Okay. Yeah.
0: And if it wasn't, what did they do? Stop the line?
1: Well, then, then they would call us. Then we would start working on... You know, what ifs, you know, if it was too thick, do this. If it was too thin, do that. And then try to manipulate the formula. If there was room to do that, there was, you know, actually ranges for starch additions or other wheat flour additions or other thickeners that were used. So, we would make, you know, sometimes it would call us to make adjustments to the formula.
0: Okay. So... All these lab techs on the line, they didn't come up to the lab to run any tests. They just...
1: Well, they weren't lab techs. so They, they were, just, were the actual cooks and the operators on the line. And the lab evolved from chemists <gasps> to actual trainers and auditors. <clears throat> so, we actually trained the people how to do these tests, wrote the procedures on the what-ifs, you know, how to do it this way or, you know, what to do if it's that, going that direction... Mm-hmm. And then we started teaching them how to put the data into a system, computer system, and use statistics. And then we started teaching them about X bar and R charts and actually how to control the process. Anything that was really complicated like proteins or, or oil testing, that was all done in the lab. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the process testing – you know, it just was an, a revolution back then. Everybody started doing that testing out on the floor. So quality control literally moved from the lab to the production floor in the mid-80s, late-80s.
0: Were there that many tests they did in process at that time anyways?
1: Not not really. Not when I started. My first three years at Campbell Soup, all the testing was being done up in the lab.
0: Yeah. Was some of it like an art? Like the people just looked at and said, yeah, that's thick enough. Let's go.
1: Well, there was a lot of tenure at at Campbell Soup, um, and there was a lot of cooks that had a lot of tenure. So they they kind of knew. I mean, they had they all had stainless st- spoons. They all had their spoons, and you know they would get a sample, a, a sterile sample out of the the kettle, and then they would go over and use their spoon to taste it. And they could tell. They could tell. You know, salt test was one of the tests. Some of these guys were like, I don't need a test to tell me. I can tell by tasted it. Some of those guys had that much maturity and that, you know, that tenure there.
0: Now, but they were really testing the quality of the product, not the safety of it.
1: Correct. So yeah. they
0: had no idea if this was safe.
1: Correct. Back then, the the food safety was kind of built into the processes of temperature control, time, and all the retort systems. Because we were dealing with high acid and low acid canned foods. So, just to explain that further, a high acid product is controlled by the pH of the product. So your your tomato products high acid, low pH, and then the soups that didn't have the high the high acid or the low pH were then sterilized in, in retorts, and what just mean, like home canning.
0: Yeah, but what kind of soups would those be?
1: Oh, like chicken noodle, beef, okay, beef consommé, mm-hmm. beef broth.
0: Well, but the the tomato Pork soup was still the tomato soup was still canned,
1: yeah. everything was still canned, but we had different classifications for the products,
0: okay, and so they the people that were on the line, they just worried about whether it tastes good, look good, and just kept passing it along, kept going. I mean, we talk about the line a lot. I hope people understand what we're talking about is it starts at the beginning with the raw materials. Then you make the product as it goes. In this case, soup, that means they're cooking it. They're assembling yeah. it. How? I got a question. How do you keep in the canning of soup, the Campbell's soup, how do they know that this soup didn't end up with all the noodles and that one ended up with all the carrots and that one ended up with all the... Because every time I open a can of soup, they all kind of look uniform.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, it's <clears throat> a. It, it all goes to R&D for what they do. Some of it is starch controlled and some of it is phase filling. So chicken noodle, for example, that product, all the cooks really did was make the broth with some of the chicken meat in it. Mm-hmm. That can would go f- into multi-stage fillers, would get the noodles, they would get the broth, and they might get a water top off. Um, but some of the chunky soups, you know, the soups that you didn't, that aren't condensed, some of those starches, you know, are... Just hold the product, you know, in suspension, the noodles, the vegetables. And then sometimes they would get a meat, a pocket filled with meat.
0: So they wouldn't, I, I always picture them going down the line, like, this one gets four peas, this one gets four carrots, this no. one. They didn't do that? <laughs> <No. laughs> I did a good job stirring that up, I guess.
1: Yeah, we use some starches that would break down in thermal processing. So, you know, everything gets added to a kettle, just like you would at home. Mm-hmm. And then this kettle... Big blenders would be heated to the right temperatures, and then they'd get dropped down into the fillers for the cans. And some of these soups that ha- that were formulated to have the heavy starches so they could keep the garnish in suspension so that so that cans are consistent, that starch would then be formulated to break down under those retort conditions.
0: Okay, when you talk about starch, what kind of starch are you talking about?
1: Oh it, it it's modified corn starches, mm-hmm. potato starches, different starches that were made um uh, to to break down at different temperatures. Okay. If you didn't want it to break down then you would use a different starch that didn't break down.
0: Okay. When you say break down, you mean
1: turn into water, it would just break, you know, break the suspension.
0: Okay. All right. Like when I use corn starch and I mix it with water and I put it in the pan, it thickens under heat. Right. So they do
1: sometimes if you overheat those starches, they will reverse and just break down in the water, you know, that liquid look lu- liquid stage.
0: Oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I kept heating that, it would turn
1: well it depends on the starch. I'm not an R and D scientist, so I can't <laughs> I don't know what cornstarch does, uh, but I don't recall. But
0: Okay. So when I was a child and you were a child, the canned soup didn't have any Best Buy date.
1: And no, now it really. does. Yeah.
0: So, how long is this canned soup supposed to be good for?
1: Well, anything that's retorted can last a long time, but you know, with quality and people wanting it to be, you know, fresh when they open it, mm-hmm. you know, fresh is a is a, such a loose term, right? Nobody can define that, but right. It's typically two two to three years. Like when I worked at star and the tuna. The tuna had a canned shelf life of three years. But okay. I can tell you that tuna went to, you know, the military rations and that shelf life was way beyond three years.
0: Okay. So after you left, well, actually, how much did the QA stuff change from the time you started at Campbell's to you <clears throat> left?
1: Yeah. So that kind of was start of the change. Um, so we kind of went from, Quality control to the employees owning the process, and them teaching them how to control the process. And then in the in the late nineties, we started looking at food safety more. Um, there was a lot of recalls that were popping up. The Global Food Safety Initiative was was starting. It's a global organization that was a group of uh, retailers and a, a group of, of food safety people from the industry who got together and said, we need a global food safety standard. When you're working for these C- CPG companies or manufacturing companies, you're getting audited by every customer on food safety. Some of our plants, you know, were going through 10 to 16 audits a year and they were all being, you know, everybody was asking the same questions. So the GFSI, the Global Food Safety Initiative, was started um, by the Consumers Forum Group. And they got together and said, look, we need one food safety standard, one audit that's accepted by all, and we can get rid of all these customer audits. So that happened. You know, FSMA was starting to be talked about at Washington and regulated. Um, So and
0: FISMA is?
1: FISMA <laughs> is the Food Safety Modernization Act that was signed into law by the Obama administration. Okay. And it really changed um, the food law because it required everybody to have a food safety plan. Prior to FISMA being signed, the seafood industry, the juice industry, the egg industry, and the meat industry under USDA were kind of regulated by having what we call HACCP plans. And HACCP stands for Hazard Analysis and Critical Control Points. And what those plans did was identify the processes in the plant, identify the risk, how are you going to control those risks, and how are you going to rank those risks. And FISBA came into play and made everybody have a food safety plan. It was a little bit different than HACCP because the food safety plan included um, what HACCP was calling prerequisite programs. The food safety plan wanted those to be part of the assessment and part of the food safety risk assessment. Uh, Sanitation also came into play with the food safety plans. Food safety plans also looked at food defense and adulteration. So, how do you protect the food in your plant from being contaminated by somebody who could come into the plant that's not wanted, you know, unauthorized personnel or a disgruntled employee, you know, you know the old tylenol issue, uh, right? Okay. So the the Food Safety Modernization Act try to address all those issues.
0: Oh, okay. For people who are really young, they probably didn't know what the Tylenol off. Yeah, that's is. true. So go ahead, tell me but, the Tylenol Well, thing. I don't
1: know if I remember the whole story. <laughs> oh, but he
0: just came it, in and tainted like...
1: Yeah, a, bottles couple, opened them up. And, I think
0: it was like, I don't know, a couple hundred bottles maybe. And they went out and the people Nobody died. knew
1: where they were. Nope, yeah.
0: they had no traceability on them or anything.
1: Exactly. Well,
0: did the GFSI, did that help the situation by getting rid of all these audits?
1: Yeah, I would say it did. Um We're kind of tilting the needle back the other way now unfortunately um now that i'm with shears foods and being a big co-manufacturer and private label manufacturer you know we obviously go through these gfsi audits and there's different platforms we use the sqf platform uh, safe quality foods but the Customers are kind of swinging back and wanting to get in the plants now that COVID's over. They want to get back in the plants and see how their product's being made. So now these customer audits are kind of picking up again.
0: Yeah. All right. Let's go go back because I'm going to go back to in the beginning when you get ingredients in. I know a lot of companies did. They did certify. They certified their suppliers. Yes. So they didn't have to test every single thing that came in.
1: Yep. That's another so explain evolution. That. Explain yeah. that. Yeah. So, you know, when I was at Campbell's starting out as a young chemist, we tested everything. I mean, um the spaghettios, right? Here's a funny story. So the spaghettios, how many shapes, how many, how many different size rings are in spaghettios? Does anybody know that answer? I'm
0: gonna guess
1: three. You're right. There's three sizes, <laughs> there's three <laughs> diameters of rings in spaghettios. <laughs> The shaped pasta as well, right? There's different shapes. I actually but thought anyway.
0: that was a mistake. You know what I mean? Like if I found little ones, I thought no, it was just a mistake. No, that way. Uh, Okay.
1: <laughs> so here's a funny story. So as a chemist, we'd get these one-pound samples, one-pound sample of pallets and pallets of dried spaghetti-o rings, right? We'd be sitting down at a table. We'd weigh out so many of out of this one-pound sample. And we had to count how many large, medium, and small rings there were. And make sure they were in spec. Oh man. Well, then finally, we got to the point where we started talking to our suppliers and getting them involved in statistics and supplier quality qualification programs. And lo and behold, you go to these suppliers and you say, Well, we have a mold or a dye, I'm sorry, a dye that goes on the extruder and the dye plate. Is designed, engineered to, to deliver the spec. So there's no way they can cheat you,
0: and and there's no reason so to. So there's
1: no reason to test.
0: But does it really matter if you got the exact number in well, each can?
1: It, in thermal processing, it actually does matter because p- pasta weight is one of the critical factors. Because if you have too much pasta, too much beans in these heavy. These products that thicken as mm-hmm. they cook. If you have too much pasta, you may not get the lethality that that product was designed for. If there was too many big rings or too many small rings. Oh, wait, was
0: that word you just said?
1: Lethality.
0: What is that?
1: So lethality <laughs> is killing the botulism
0: oh.
1: in the canned food product. So all of our thermal processes are designed to kill botulinum.
0: Okay. So explain what thermal processing is, because I do I know. But.
1: So well, that's cooking under pressure with a hermetic seals. Your, so like, containers. Home, like yeah. home,
0: okay. home, like home candy. Okay.
1: Like home candy, gotta all have right. a hermetic seal. You gotta all cook right. under vacuum to get the temperatures that you desire.
0: All right. So you had to. So you no longer had to count.
1: Right. So we, yeah. So once we started talking to suppliers and quality was now involved instead of, you know, before it was just procurement, you know, getting a contract, getting the price. But now when you got companies now reaching out and doing supplier qualifications, now you got a cross-functional team of people talking to the supplier and you're learning all these things and you're like, okay, we don't, we don't need to do this or we don't need to do that. And and this having a makes college,
0: having a college degree person sitting there counting the uh, yeah rings crazy. those yeah that's terrible yeah yeah because I I always heard about this they would certify their their suppliers so they didn't have to test every single vegetable right. every single you know tomato as you said every little I pasta have, ring.
1: I have lived from one extreme to the other now we hardly test anything right it's all supplier qualification. Getting their third-party audits, getting their certifications, getting their allergen statements, getting their ingredient statements, and even getting the ingredient statements of the ingredients that they're buying that's coming together to make the product that we're eventually buying from the suppliers.
0: Right.
1: And then um, you know, agreeing on a specification and them certifying sort of that each lot is meeting that specification when we get it in. Now Obviously with with all that process we don't accept a lot of ingredients unless we have that certificate uh, certificate of analysis CoA is what we call it certificate okay. analysis.
0: Now where did you work after Campbell's?
1: So after Campbell's I was with Campbell's for nine years then um, well Campbell's also also got me to Green Bay so I I, I went from the big Campbell soup plant in Napoleon. To the Campbell Soup division of Vlasic, Vlasic Pickles. Oh, okay. And moved to the great state of Wisconsin.
0: Now, pickles are easier to do than soup, right?
1: Yes, but still very complicated. Really? Fermenting pickles outside in big fiberglass tanks was very eye-opening for me. Didn't know how to do that until I worked at Vlasic.
0: What do you mean, uh, in tanks? So. Do you mean they didn't just put cucumbers in the jar and put some pickle juice on it?
1: So, there's two different types of pickles out there. There's fresh-packed pickles and there's fermented pickles. So, fresh-packed pickles are sometimes refrigerated and sometimes they're acidified enough and and pasteurized enough. So, we don't need that intense heat like you do for soup or pickles because we're using acidified brines. Uh, But – Fresh pack pickles are typically crunchier, have a brighter green color, okay, and sometimes refrigerated. Vlasic didn't have any refrigerated fresh pack products. Um, you know the competitors like Mount Olive, Clausen, they mm-hmm. they had the refrigerated, but um, those you had the fresh pack and the fermented. So the fermented ones is where you can't pack all the fresh pickles because okay. you don't have the capacity. So you put those. In tank farms, they call them tank farms, which are sometimes wood tanks, some are fiberglass. But you fill them up with a salt brine, and you let the lactobacillus bacteria, the good lactobacillus bacteria, grow and ferment the pickles under um, an oxygen, you know, a, a, an oxygen treatment where we're pumping air into the tank, getting the 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 air right to get the lactobacillus to grow.
0: How big a tank?
1: Oh, twice as big as this table. I mean, these vats were, I can't tell you how many bushels, but they were, they were pretty large. Yeah.
0: And they were just, they were in a building? And they
1: were outside. Side. They were outside. outside. Yep.
0: And they had lids on them, I suppose.
1: <laughs> they did, but they didn't have lids on them all the time. Yep. Yeah, so the, the lids were just basically two, you know, two by sixes or two by eights that were laid across the tops of these tanks. And, you know, it would take, you know, these, these tanks would ferment all year, ferment all winter. And then in the wintertime, you pulled out of them. And in the spring until you got the fresh crop, that's. Where you got your pickles to pack. So, a lot of relish. Relish is made with fermented pickles. Your hamburger chips.
0: So, did they take the fermented pickles and then make relish? Yes. So, they're sitting out there in these vats or these these things.
1: Tank farms, yeah.
0: And they have lids on them. But snow, rain? Yeah. Doesn't matter. Yeah. And then they take the pickles out. And they grind them up and make relish. Well, yeah,
1: we would take the pickles out of these fermentation tanks and then we would bring them in. Then we'd have to desalinate them. So we'd have to put them in water.
0: And rinsing them. And
1: Well, we're drawing the salt out. So the salt is keeping them from rotting. Okay. And keeping that lactobacillus in check. Okay. So they're so salty that we have to actually take the salt out of them to be able to put them in the jars for people to eat.
0: Okay. And, you, and so you put like new pickle juice on it or something? Yes, yeah. so we
1: put a new brine on it, a fresh brine with garlic or herbs or what other spices. Um, some of them were heavy syrup, you know, corn syrup to make the sweet dills or the sweet hamburger chips.
0: lily, we used to call that. Yeah. <laughs> so they still make pickles this way? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yep. all right.
1: Nothing's changed.
0: I'm thinking snow, rain, everything on these pickles and that doesn't matter. And they didn't freeze.
1: Not with the air. So, with the air tubes in the tanks and keeping that, the tanks agitated, they didn't freeze. Well, the salt, the salt content was so high and now they didn't freeze. Yeah.
0: Cause I'm thinking you're in Green Bay, Wisconsin. That's, yeah, it was it, pretty cold. It was pretty cold. <laughs> All right. Well, that's, that's interesting. Do you still eat pickles?
1: Oh, absolutely. Well, yeah. Them. I still buy the pickles that uh, the Wisconsin brand that Vlasic owned was called Milwaukee's Best. Yeah. Not the beer, the pickles. And uh, you can still buy them at Meyer.
0: Yeah. Have you ever heard of the uh, the Pittsburgh Pickle?
1: Yes, the Pittsburgh Pickle yeah. Company. We call
0: them the Pickle Brothers. They're, they're pretty cool guys. They started making pickles. Yeah. And they only did it because they thought that they had the best recipe for their bar because they own a bar. Mm-hmm. And everybody loved them and people started wanting to take some home. So they started making pickles. And I guess canning pickles in your back room is pretty easy. So they now have a little warehouse and they manufacture pickles and all these pickle things.
1: Became a craft business for them. Yeah. I actually looked at the plant that they bought. Um, Uh That plant that they bought um, in Verona um, actually was a family-owned business that was making pasta okay and the family was was trying to sell the pasta business and I actually was mm. this close it was close to being interested enough to put an offer out on it. My wife and I toured it on a weekend the family was very um you know, Open for us to come in on the weekend to, to look at the business. Um, they they loved my background, obviously, and um, it was just going to be too much, too big, not the right time for me. Yeah. So then they sold out to the these guys that turned it into Brothers. a pickle business. Yeah, yeah,
0: they and they now co-manufacture for other people too. Mm-hmm. But they are very devoted to their pickles. They yeah. love those pickles. And they and they, I looked on their website, they now make pickle juice. Because I guess people think pickle juice is something you should drink.
1: Well, that's how Gatorade started. It is? Yeah. So, Gatorade was developed at the University of Florida. Learned this in food science. Um, it was actually... Basically, pickle juice with some other ingredients in it that's that was the first Gatorade, so all those that sodium those electrolytes that were in the pickle juice is what gave the athletes that rehydration
0: but now they've gone to the sweet side <laughs> I think I don't like, Gatorade. but now
1: they're kinda some of these products are coming back because of the benefits of pickle juice,
0: yeah, okay, so you left the pickle business then where'd you go?
1: So I left the pickle business and then being in Wisconsin, you had to be a cheese head, right? <gasps> so I started in, in, a, in a cheese company. It was the third largest uh, cheese company in the United States. It was the largest Italian cheese maker in the United States. And who and, was that? And I worked for them for three years. That was Stella Cheese at the oh, time. Oh, okay. So... Um,
0: and what kind of cheese did you make?
1: We made Italian cheeses. We made soft cheeses like ricotta and then we made... Blue cheese. Um, then we made the hard cheeses like Parmesan, Romano, Asiago.
0: All right, tell me how you make blue cheese. I love blue cheese, but
1: yeah. everybody
0: thinks that blue cheese is rotten.
1: Oh no! So, so again, how- just like pickles, right? You, okay. You're 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 wanting this good bacteria to turn the food, fi- you know, turn the cucumbers into pickles. Same mm-hmm. thing with blue cheese. You've got this cheese curd that you're inoculating. With bacteria, and I can't remember the lack bacteria, but it's a lactobacillus based bacteria as well. But it you, you inoculate the curd, and then under the right temperature and conditions, that bacteria grows to create the blue, the blue color, and the flavor.
0: So that so they t- pack all those curds in a container and then inoculate and no, makes no, no, the blue no. vein,
1: the, the vat of curd, the vat. Once the the cheese is set, they inoculate it in the vats.
0: Okay, I see all these videos now on how to make your own cheese at home. You know, with the milk and the
1: mm-hmm. vinegar, vinegar or something. Yeah, that's how you make ricotta. Yeah, yeah. You
0: take take that out, and yeah, they show you how to make fresh mozzarella this way, and and stuff. So the blue vein is the inoculated part of it. Yes. Okay. Yep. And then it's so it's not unsafe to eat. Oh no,
1: not at all. No.
0: I, so, lo- I love There's a cheese. lot of
1: bacteria that's used in food that makes the food what it is that's safe to eat.
0: Yeah. Not all
1: bacteria is bad.
0: I know, but many people think it is. Yeah. If you have bacteria in your foods, right. then there's to be something wrong with it. So you did that for three years, you said? Yeah. Okay. So now we've covered soup. Pickles and cheese. Okay, where are we going
1: next? Now I'm heading south. I'm heading south and I'm working at the, the world's largest baby food plant
0: in, uh,
1: in uh, Fort Smith, Arkansas. So moved on to Gerber baby food.
0: And what kind of baby food are you making? Are you in the fruits? and
1: We did everything. Them? We did the uh, the smokehouse with the little meat sticks. Oh. We did dry cereal. And then we did all the wet Fruit and vegetables. Okay. Glass jar.
0: And all the little dinners and everything?
1: See, back then it was just the glass jars. We didn't do, yeah. Yeah, the little. The the mix. Yeah. 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 Okay.
0: So I always find it interesting that pet food and baby food are the only food that we sell where who eats it is not the person who bought it. Yeah. So you have to make baby food appeal to the parents so they'll feed it to the kid and you have to make it so it appeals to the child
1: right that's that's where the food safety and the trust really was a huge part of the Gerber business and the Gerber culture. Um, great company to work for it I mean food safety was easy, right I mean there was no no gray it was black and white. If there was any doubt, throw it out. you know there was a line in the plant. So, after the food was processed in the retorts, so again, low acid canned food, some of it, some of it was high acid. It was a lot cheaper to throw it away before it got labeled, cartoned, shrink wrap, put in the warehouse. So, food safety, zero tolerance for any issues.
0: But many of those were single ingredients. So, there wasn't, yeah, right? You, you, if it, if it passed the certification coming in, you, Processed it correctly, it was kind of a no-brainer because you didn't have anything to fault it.
1: There was a lot of analytical testing that was done on the raw materials coming in. So, a lot of, you know, produce was coming in, you know, the sweet potatoes, the the beets, the apples, peaches, a lot of testing, a lot of um, looking for insects and larvae, you know, stuff like that. Um, pesticide testing holding our growers accountable. So we, you know, I, we talked earlier about supplier qualifications and relying on COAs. Baby food was a lot different where you just really, you, you, the company had the trust with the families, the mothers, the parents, right? So we trusted our suppliers. We had contracts and we had these requirements, but we still did a lot of verifications okay. at the plant.
0: Talk about the pests, because, there's a lot I don't think people realize that there is a certain amount of pest is allowed in our food. Yep. I mean, if a fly drops in a vat, they don't throw it away
1: no there's there, <laughs> people are not going to want to hear this but no, go the, ahead. F, the fda has <laughs> has a has a, a guidance document out there that allows for certain insect fragment parts to be in foods
0: now, I always heard this story that oatmeal allowed a certain percentage of mouse droppings in its oatmeal.
1: That is adulteration. That <clears throat> I don't know if that story Well, they true.
0: can't have 100%. It can't be 100%. Their oatmeal looks like a lot of things. Yeah. And they said, you know what? If we found some in there and it was tested less than, I always heard that fig newtons had so many flies in it.
1: Yeah, that's possible. Because
0: all the flies buzzing around, there's no way they could keep the flies out.
1: Yeah. The, yeah. The fruit flies were the biggest issue with with fruits and vegetables and mm-hmm. them laying eggs. Um, that was probably the biggest thing was we, that we were looking for. I mean, we did do insect frags on cereals, grains that were coming in, um, but Gerber had high standards and you know high expectations. If we if the if the raw materials didn't meet our specs. Mm-hmm. Those raw materials were typically sold to another processor where those types of standards didn't matter, right? Yeah. So, you know, if mold count was high on squash or, um, I'm trying to think what else, um, any other fruits or vegetables. If the mold count was high, maybe it could go to another plant where it was maybe being processed as pet food or being processed with something else where it didn't have those standards.
0: Now, you said you were there when it was just glass jars.
1: Yeah, we, didn't have, we did not uh, convert the plant to plastic yet, to the aseptic plastic packaging yet.
0: Okay, because I know it went from glass jars to little plastic uh, containers to now pouches.
1: Yeah. So yeah.
0: it's gone through a big transition there.
1: Yeah. Now, After my time,
0: yeah, the um, the Gerber. I don't know if they even make. They probably don't even make those little meals anymore, like the chicken dinner and things like that. Those were really, they were awful.
1: You mean in the same jar? Yeah, yeah, they still did, like noodles with meat in it yeah. or a vegetable mix.
0: Um, I wonder if they eat, people buy those little. Hot those little wieners that were in the
1: jars. <laughs> you know
0: what I mean? Those little smoke, whatever you yeah. call them. They
1: We had our own smoke house. I, I mean, wonder if
0: people still buy those. You know I, I couldn't ha- buy, you know what? Talk about a parent who couldn't feed their kid certain things. I looked at those and they had water in them. Mm-hmm. And I would go, mm, uh, I'll feed them a hot dog.
1: Yeah. You're we pretty close to hot dogs. That's
0: right. They just probably just were safer. Controlled. They were probably yeah, oh, safer than a hot dog. Yeah. And I would feed my kid a hot dog. Yeah. Because I went, oh, that is so gross.
1: Well, they, you know, it was all about choking, right? So one of our critical control points was the size of the particle. So obviously, a lot of Gerber baby foods are pureed, but mm-hmm. once you get into like the toddler links, or even that second step or third step that they have now with mm-hmm. the pieces. You know, the FDA says that if anything is larger than um, seven millimeters, it's a choking hazard. Okay. So there was a lot of control to make sure that that our particle sizes were small enough. Okay. So that's why the hot dog is not as safe as the little weenies that, you know, the little smokies that we did because they were the right diameter.
0: Right. Well, we were supposed to cut our hot dogs up. Yeah. Make sure they weren't a choking hazard. I didn't measure it, but, you know, make sure. Well- Go back to HACCP for a second, because I don't think people really understand that when you're making a food product, some of these critical control points might be that you heat it to the right temperature, that you added certain ingredients for that it was. So, talk about that for a little bit.
1: Yeah. So, different products have different critical control points. Um, You know, like a high acid food, if you're, you know, you want to heat the container as well as the product. On a high acid food, so that you're killing any bacteria that's in the package or in the container. Aseptic pouches that you mentioned earlier that goes through a a, a a filling unit that is a sterile unit within itself. Sometimes there's a hydrogen peroxide or some other sterile agent that's sprayed on the nozzle before it's taken apart, before it's filled, and then sprayed again before the the closure goes back on. But it's all know under filled under aseptic conditions but you know temperature is critical time is critical cleanliness is critical as i said earlier weight you know and thickness of products is also critical if it's if a product is designed to be a certain thickness and if it's too thick that process that thermal process that you've established may not may not be enough for it
0: okay I mean, there's lots of controls set that have nothing to do with food safety or anything. They just set controls for, like you said, weight, like making sure that.
1: Yeah, but that weight is correlated to a food safety event because if that weight's not right, if you got too much pasta or too many beans in a can, you may not get the right lethality and therefore you may still have that risk of Clostridium botulinum in the can. So that's where it comes into play. All the critical control points for HACCP plans really relate only to food safety and not quality.
0: Now, when you had, um, I know you weren't at Gerber when this happened, but when they first came out with all the pouches, there was an episode, and I don't know if it lasted, was across several companies or just one company, where there was black mold and everything in the pouches, and they suddenly, parents were demanding clear pouches so they could see Mm. the food inside.
1: Yeah, that was one of the benefits of having the glass jars at at Gerber was, you know, people could see the product, they could see the color, they, they knew what that color was supposed to be, they could see the viscosity or the thickness of that product.
0: Yeah. Man. But do you remember that happening? It was just it was not it's just a few years ago.
1: Yeah. Just, I, I don't recall exactly exactly what happened. Yeah, um, I
0: don't know who what company yeah. was, but it just suddenly and then suddenly within the year we see a lot of clear packages. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel better about that. Yeah. When they first came out, I didn't think they hand it to my child to eat. Yeah. I actually squirted it on the spoon, you right. know, and fed them. I never thought that you're supposed to <laughs> hand it to them. And now they don't even know how to use spoons. You just hand them the food, and they just—they
1: just unscrew the top yeah. and suck <laughs> it, suck it down like a straw.
0: <laughs> My grandkids have figured out how to roll it up so they get everything out of it. Yeah, and it, it's and they know now to ask for help if they want you to get all of the whatever out of the pouch. Yeah, That's pretty cool.
1: I think that's the great thing of going from glass to plastic. Is you know there was a lot of risk with glass shards and mm-hmm. breakage in the line. I mean, are those fillers? They were high speed fillers. We're talking 1200 jars a minute being filled. I mean, you, you'd, you'd have to have a camera to actually see your line run to make sure everything was timed perfectly because the line was running so fast. You couldn't even, it was just one blur. single blur.
0: So what'd they do if a jar broke?
1: So we had to shut down. We had these glass free zone, uh, parameters that we followed you know we had to clean so many feet away um, complete washdown. a lot of people with flashlights inspecting to make sure there was not one bit of piece of, of glass fragment anywhere on the floor or on the production line or anything before we started back up again
0: so how often would that happen
1: uh it happened more than i mean when it did happen it was you know all hands on deck I mean, you might get two or three a week.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah,
1: we had good engineers at Gerber, and our lines ran really well.
0: Okay, so then after Gerber, where did you go?
1: We so that's when, I, food. that's when I. That's <laughs> I when I.
0: I think you when, covered all of them. But let's go. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, then that's when I joined the Heinz HJ Heinz Company um in 2000. I joined Heinz, and Heinz was a good fit because at the time they were making baby food in Pittsburgh here. Uh, they were making pickles. Um, they had a huge plant in Holland, Michigan that was that were making pickles. And then of course Pittsburgh plant in Muscatine was making soup, and then they were making all the acidified condiments. The they acidified were just foods. waiting for you. Yeah, they were just waiting for me.
0: So the baby food they made, it was Heinz baby food, right? Yeah. So Gerber was number one in the United States. Right. But wasn't Heinz, Heinz, Heinz like number one in Canada or something?
1: Heinz was number one in Canada. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And Gerber was number one in the US. Yeah. And Heinz was a close second, sometimes second or third in the US, with with Hain's celestial foods, you know, playing a role in that in that market.
0: Was that the beech nut?
1: Yeah, beechnut, right. Yeah. Oh, I should have said beechnut, not Hain. Yeah. yeah beech nut was in there. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So so I don't even remember Heinz baby food. I guess I think I I was yeah. past that or something. But the uh, they were the glass jars and they were the same thing.
1: Yep. Glass jars. Yep. Okay. Yep.
0: But Heinz doesn't do baby food anymore, do no. they? They sold no. that off? Would they sell it off or did they just send it to Canada?
1: Well, we tried, if I, if my memory serves me right, we tried to buy Beech Nuts. Okay. And then, you know, the, the antitrust people stepped in and said, no, you're going to monopolize the baby food market, even though Gerber was a large number one player, right? Mm-hmm. So they didn't think you know beech nut and heinz coming together was good for the US people, for the for the population. So that, that didn't go through. When that didn't go through, we just kinda we made we we did some private label for Hain Celestial that I remember, but then it just kind of disappeared. Yeah.
0: Yeah, because I don't think they do it anymore. No. Do they still do pickles?
1: Yes. Yes. Still have a big plant in Holland, Michigan doing pickles.
0: Okay. Now I always was fascinated with Heinz that the products in the United States were not always the same as the products in
1: Europe. That's correct. They would yeah. make
0: totally different things over there.
1: Yeah. Heinz ketchup is a great example. Okay. Where if you go to Canada, even Canada, not even Europe. If you go to Canada, my first time going to Canada with Heinz and eating Heinz ketchup, I was shocked by how sweet it was. But it's much... Uh, They they use sugar and it's a higher sugar content in Europe and in in Canada. They like that sweeter ketchup taste where in the United States, it's more of a, I call it a sugar acid balance. You get get the balance.
0: All right. Let's talk about food safety for a second with ketchup because I know you go into a restaurant and there's like, I got tons of questions here, but you go into a restaurant (laughs) (laughs) and- Back in the day, when I worked in a restaurant, we refilled all our ketchup bottles. Oh, I know. And we Dasty. didn't always refill it with Heinz ketchup. We refilled it with whatever. But we kept the Heinz bottle around because, especially Western Pennsylvania, you better have Heinz or you better just leave town. Right. So, we would do that. How did that affect Heinz if something happened?
1: Yeah. I mean, it affected Heinz a lot because if the bottles get contaminated, even though that product— has the right pH, you know, to preserve itself on the table. If it got contaminated, it would grow the wrong bacteria like lactobacillus, the wrong lactobacillus. And you get these white spots and gas production. I don't know. I've, I've, you know, people would complain, Hey, I was at the restaurant. I opened up your Heinz ketchup bottle. And when I opened the bottle, the ketchup just came gushing out.
0: Oh, yeah. They burp on you.
1: Right. So that's just telling you that it was contaminated and that bacteria is producing gas. And, and then that gas is trapped underneath the lid. And then you open the lid and then somebody's getting a shower of ketchup.
0: We needed a we needed a public you know announcement about that.
1: Well, people <laughs> d- shouldn't be doing that. That was a real problem for No, it was
0: for the consumer. Uh, so I know if I went to a restaurant and did that, I should have had some – it should have been like a, a – if we should have a Facebook page about that. So we would go and I'd know, I'm telling you, I know. And I'd be like, oh, I used to actually think it was a full bottle. I'd do that. I thought it was fresh. So now you're telling me I was, <laughs> I was you know, a contaminated one.
1: Yeah. I mean, when you open up a fresh bottle of ketchup, a new bottle, you should just hear that vacuum seal break. Not that, you know, you should hear vacuum coming out and then not the gush. So, Heinz went to a, a, a food service bottle that you couldn't remove the cap. Now, obviously, the glass bottles, we couldn't do that. So, we were trying to get all the restaurants to convert to these plastic bottles. They came out with the upside-down bottle. And yes. then they designed a, a cap that couldn't, you couldn't unscrew it.
0: And then they did the thing where they made the bottle red. So, now, right. so now you couldn't tell it was empty unless you picked yeah, it up. right. Cause I think that's what most restaurants had a problem with was having all of these bottles on the table. And this one has this much, right. and, you know, they wanted them all to look full.
1: Right. No, there was many times I'd go to restaurants and it's like, they hand me the ketchup bottle and there's nothing <laughs> because it's red. Yeah. And then you know, they couldn't, I don't know, they couldn't tell.
0: Yeah. But I, I know that in the, some of the restaurants I worked in when I was a kid that they had All of the, um, you know, every night we would refill them. So they'd be down halfway. So some of that ketchup in there might've been in there for years that never made its way out of the bottle.
1: Yeah. That's not a good thing. (laughs) No,
0: it's not a good thing. But this is back in the day when we knew nothing about food service. We knew nothing about shelf life. We thought all ketchup could be sat on the table forever. How long can the, how long can a bottle of ketchup sit on the table?
1: You know, because it's a restaurant food service bottle, it really wasn't designed to stay on the table, you know for more than a couple of weeks. We would expect that bottle to be consumed in a couple of days. It's really better to put the ketchup back in the refrigerator
0: so I, I go I go to this restaurant one time. I think it was down in West Virginia or something and they had the the pump thing for high for ketchup, fill mm-hmm. your little cup and i I did it, and I said, to the, I said to the girl, I said, this is not Heinz. She says, yes, it is. It says Heinz on there. I said, no, it's not. This is not Heinz. I said, I know what Heinz tastes like and this is not Heinz. And they were just refilling it with whatever store brand ketchup that they could and left the Heinz label on it.
1: Yeah. When I was in the, in the quality team, we would go to these different restaurants and we would tell the the owners, we'd call them out on it. And then we would get the salespeople to come back and do a revisit and talk to them. And Try to understand why that was happening. And, you know, it was it was bizarre because it, it wasn't safe. I mean, it's a safe product. It was hard to, you know, ruin it. But just, it wasn't our quality. You're expecting Heinz quality and it, it it's not there. So we tried to fix those problems.
0: Yeah, you're expecting the Heinz taste.
1: Yeah. You yeah. wanted
0: that. And so, how long were you at Heinz?
1: 13 years.
0: And what was your final position there?
1: Oh, like assistant director to quality and (laughs) regulatory affairs. I don't know. I had so many different positions in those 13 years.
0: Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So you brought up something interesting regulatory affairs. How does regulatory affairs fit in all this food safety and quality assurance and everything?
1: Yeah. So that's. Regulatory affairs is interesting because there's kind of two sides to it. The one side of it is the label side of things and making sure that everything that's on the package that the consumer buys is is meeting the regulations and that nutrition statement is correct and that the ingredient statement, the formula – is all put coming together to make sure that those nutrients are delivered? That's that's stated on the package. So that there's a lot of re- regulatory work that's done there with, you know, ensuring the allergens are declared correctly. Uh, any certifications like gluten free or non-GMO or halal um, or kosher certifications, all that works involved in that labeling process. The other coin, the other. Part of the coin with regulatory affairs is just keeping up on, you know, the FDA regulations and and what's hot for them. You know, FDA has gone through different things in my career where you know arsenic and rice was a big issue. So it was keeping up on that and how they were doing market basket um inspections at the grocery store where they're pulling product off the shelf and doing all this arsenic testing.
0: Um, why would there be arsenic in it?
1: Well, rice inherently has arsenic in it because of the way it's grown. Because the the arsenic is inherent in our environment; it's inherent yeah. in the soil and in the water. So the way the way rice is grown in in the rice fields, you know, just inherently has arsenic in it when it's when it's processed, harvested, and dried and processed. Um, carrots have a trace of arsenic. Um, there's different.
0: How do you get rid of arsenic in rice?
1: Well, you don't, you just gotta, you just gotta control your consumption of, of rice. Um, the FDA has set thresholds based on their market study, basket, you know, market study, market basket study, I should say. Um, they've set thresholds and you know, it's just you to, so to control the arsenic is to control where you're growing it. So you've got to monitor your soil and your water conditions and try not to plant those crops in in those areas or fields that may have high levels of arsenic or cadmium or other heavy metals.
0: So, it would it matter which country you get it from?
1: Not necessarily. I mean, we're talking about rice that was being grown and and harvested here in the United States, especially Arkansas. Arkansas is a big rice producing state, and okay, you know, if if FDA was to come out and say, you know, the threshold is here, but Capability-wise, these farms are above that threshold. That could have a huge impact on the industry. But you know, FDA has safe levels defined for arsenic, and it's really up to the farmer to test test their product and make sure they, you know, move move growing, rotate crops, move fields, control how do, it.
0: How does the FDA decide what's safe? I mean. But is it safe to them? Or I mean, it's like what, yeah, what's, what's well, what the word they safe look, mean?
1: They, they look for research. They look to see if there's any research that's been done at universities on, um, you know, consumption of arsenic and what the effects of that consumption is. They look, they kind of look, do that research. If there's no research out there, they may consult with the universities or other health organizations to, to do those types of studies. But
0: I don't know, part of me thinks that Zeros, what we need in arsenic. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> but you're saying that it can't be accomplished.
1: Can't be accomplished.
0: So yeah. we're gonna get arsenic in it, whether one or two or not. Yeah. We would we get that in the rice that we just have at home, like we cook?
1: Yeah. 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 That's f- white rice is probably worse than brown rice. If you had an option to pick white or brown, pick brown. Brown has lower levels of arsenic. Really? Yeah.
0: No, I've never, I don't want to
1: scare anybody, but. But
0: I've never it's heard that there. before. That yeah. kind of scares me right now.
1: No, I shouldn't be scared.
0: <laughs> Having arsenic in it, it.
1: And it goes all the way back, right? Always talking about balanced diet, you know, making sure, you know, that you're eating a, a, a good rotation of foods.
0: Is arsenic something that stays in your system or is it something that goes out? Like people say you have too much potassium, but it, it yeah. does kind of, too much sodium. That obviously goes out of your body. Yeah.
1: I'm not sure. I'm not. I I couldn't tell. I can't Well, you think
0: about all the people that eat rice. Like, think about Chinese people always eat rice. They don't don't seem to be dying from arsenic poisoning. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Let's cut that out. I
0: don't know if people are not. (laughs) Well, it's the
1: same thing with mercury and tuna, right? I mean, everybody's complaining about mercury content in tuna, but you got... These guys are out on fishing vessels for two months. Guess what they're eating most of the time? Yeah, they're eating what they catch,
0: right? And they seem to be fine. Yeah, that's why I asked if the FDA has these certain levels. But I mean, obviously, we have some of these things in our environment, so we're yeah. going to get them in our food,
1: right? So F- FDA does monitor our food supply for different different things, and these these I call them hot topics. They come up once in a while, and mm-hmm. the regulatory affairs people, you know they kind of keep an eye on that stuff to keep 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 the business up to date on these types of things mercury and tuna you know they monitor that there's still safe levels uh, of tuna out there obviously you know there's certain companies that are marketing themselves as being lower mm-hmm. than other companies for mm-hmm. for uh, mercury content but it's inherent in the tuna the it's inherent in the fish um, but FDA just does a great job of monitoring those values and just seeing where there's hot, you know, hot spikes in different regions of the world.
0: Yeah, now, now we talk about FDA a lot, but there's USDA, and I know that there's two par- arms to the USDA. USDA is the fruit and vegetables, but the USDA is the meat industry.
1: Right. So, so FDA has yeah, fruits and vegetables and the and the. Um, what you call sandwiches and stuff like that. USDA has the poultry and the beef and, you know, the other meat products. Um, yeah. The USDA, you know, different philosophies. USDA actually is in the plant. Every
0: yeah. single plant that has meat in it. Yep.
1: They're, they're three, usually two or three shifts of inspectors. They're in the plant at least, you know, at least 12 hours a day. Um You know some of these inspectors are assigned to multiple plants so they're not at your plant all day they may go to another plant for part of their shift but yeah usda is on site you know usda was the first to come out with hasop um and you you know the usda just has a closer eye on things
0: is it because of its meat or is
1: yeah well yeah it kind of kind of all goes back um I'm not 100% sure how USDA got started, but, you know, the meat industry had a bad rap. Um, Wiley um, was working for the FDA, and he, you know, this goes, trying to test my memory here, but this goes back to, back, I don't know what year it was, but back in, you know, where meat was being processed in the Chicago area. The and, Chicago
0: Stockyards. Yeah,
1: Chicago Stockyards, and then, uh the army was buying a lot of canned meat and it really wasn't meat. It was just junk. It was all the byproducts and and stuff like that. So, you know, um, Wiley was work. I can't think of his first name. Wiley was part of the FDA. He was calling this stuff out. Couldn't get, you know, the lobbyists were kind of controlling the FDA. So he couldn't get his message out there. So he moved to the USDA branch. And mm-hmm. I think, his work on trying to get the meat industry cleaned up is what led to the USDA. That's yeah. my recollection. So
0: that's a good thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I you know, being in the industry 37 years, I, I think it's time for the FDA and the USDA to merge and, and just be one group. The FDA spends a lot more time on drugs and pharmaceuticals than I than food. And that's my perception. I think um, you know, some of our plants you know the food manufacturing plants that are under FDA control they're only looked at maybe once every 3 years and the FDA wants to try to control the global food supply and through fisma they've kind of done this with foreign supplier verification program they've instilled in these foreign suppliers that the food products that they make that are exported to the United States have to meet our standards and our and our regulations So through the foreign supplier verification program, there's a lot of the hazard analysis, the risk, the documentation that has to come into that importer of record. That importer of record is usually the broker or usually the company that's that's selling that product if they have a base here in the United States, and they're responsible for making sure all that paperwork's right. But the FDA just doesn't have the bandwidth, you know, and obviously the USDA. Doesn't have all the bandwidth either, but but they're at least um, regulated to be in the plants at the sites for live inspections.
0: What do you think the public misunderstands about FDA and USDA?
1: Um, I'm not sure because if 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 the public consumer thinks that FDA is in the plant all the time, that's a misconception. Um, they're not. If you, if the consumer thinks that they're out there in China and other parts of the world making sure all the food that's coming to the U.S. is safe, they're not there that often. I mean, they just don't have the resources, yeah. you know.
0: Well, talk about traceability because I think that one thing we haven't talked about, and I think that people don't understand, which does make our food so safe, is that the all the quality people trace. Everything record everything, and I would say the misunderstanding people have is they think that the FDA has all these records. It's really the company yeah. has all the records. So if something happens to a product and I report it to a company, talk about the traceability.
1: Yeah, so traceability is really important. You know, all the f- companies I have worked for, we we make sure that we do internal audits on traceability. Um, it's important as part of the checks of the product and the process to make sure that that code is legible and and the code is correct. But but traceability is important in case there is an issue so that you can identify where that product was distributed to and who has it. And then on that receiving end, they can find that product and and pull it from the shelves or do what they got to do as part of the disposition of that issue. So... You know, FDA, um, you know, FDA is now starting to come out with a heavier stance on traceability requirements. Um, It's called the Smarter Era of Food Safety. And Frank Giannis, who was the deputy commissioner, FDA, he came out with this wanting better traceability, especially in the fruits and vegetables when they had a lot of issues with recalls. And you really couldn't figure out where the, the produce was coming from, what farm. It's right. very hard for that head of lettuce to be identified exactly where that fa- farm was. You could you could probably trace it back to the distributor. But, the state? Well, maybe. But that distributor, if he had good records, could trace it back to the state. And if he had really good records, he could trace it back to where he bought it from, from the farmer. Right. But, You know, traceability is all about tracing that finished product all the way back to where that was either harvested or manufactured.
0: Because if they do that and there is a recall, you could say only these products from this manufacturer. So the whole country doesn't have to panic on a recall.
1: Yeah, it does two things. One is it helps identify the source or where it was made or where it was harvested. You know, sometimes on the lettuce recalls, you know, they just don't know. Now on the Jensen Farms cantaloupe recall that happened, they they had the traceability records. They knew it was the Jensen Farms. But if it, it helps it helps the the government or the FDA to know exactly where the source is so they can isolate it and not have a widespread panic where you, you can't buy lettuce anymore. You can't buy tomatoes anymore because mm. they've taken everything off the shelf because they have no idea where the source was. So it helps on that part, but it also helps on the manufacturers in so you, they can help identify the, the amount of product that is impacted if there is a recall.
0: Now, so can't they find sometimes like, let's take lettuce. Lettuce is fine, but it gets contaminated at the- at where it's being used, like the restaurant. And can't they go back and say it wasn't the supply, it was the <laughs> sometimes, restaurant?
1: Sometimes the issue actually originates in the farm because of the irrigation practices. Right. So a lot of the produce issues that we've had in the past with with salmonella and, and listeria issues or E. coli issues, for that matter of fact, is because of the water sources. The farms were growing the vegetables and a half mile or a mile or two miles down the road was a cattle ranch. And, you know, the cattle are doing what they got to do in the field and then the rain pushes that into the water supply. Then that water supply was used for the vegetables and then they become contaminated actually at the source of the farm. But it can be also poor water being used at the, at the processing site, you know, not using potable water or chlorinated mm-hmm. water sometimes water now is treated with ozone to to kill the bacteria so it's rinsed rinsed better
0: yeah so if they keep records we can figure these things out yeah yeah that's what you have to do now when you make products in a manufacturing facility don't they pull samples off of like every run or something and keep samples or at least they keep numbers so if something gets if something goes it's, wrong they have all the records from every run
1: it's easy to do that. To to have retained samples when it's a shelf stable product. But mm-hmm. when you got a short shelf life, it really it's hard to do, especially with vegetables or, or dairy. It's you don't really find those retention samples being yeah. done.
0: Yeah. yeah. So just on the manufactured, yeah. You yeah, shelf stable. Yeah. Yeah. And I tell people this all the time you have a short window on some of these products to test them because you can't put a loaf of bread on the shelf and say, We'll test it next week. Right. It'll be rotten next week.
1: Yeah. Well, you
0: know, you have to test it. You have, you know, like if you're in the automotive industry and some people will try to make that change, they'll go from quality at the automotive industry and they want to come into the food industry and they don't understand you have, you do not have the luxury of time. Right. Because that bolt can sit there for two years before you test it. But this food product has a short, short window to test it and get it out the door.
1: Yeah. I I definitely experienced that in the the dairy industry, and and now working for Shears Foods in the the salty snack business, um, that product's going right out the door. You know we we've got a seven hour window to get all of our testing done and get all our paperwork reviewed before that product is on a positive release, going out to a truck to go to the customer. Because potato chips or salty snacks that we make on a Monday could be in the store by Wednesday. Wow. Quick.
0: So when you have, um, look at the FDA and the USDA, when you have things coming in from other countries, and I think of something like avocados, because we don't don't grow this. yeah. Yeah, coffee, you know, chocolate, cocoa beans, all those things coming from other countries. What do they have to do once they get, is there any control over this?
1: So, goes back to the Foreign Supplier Verification Program. Whoever that broker is or whoever that customer is that's buying those materials, they've got to have all that third-party certification, the COAs, um, records of their critical control points and how they're controlling them. They need to have all this documentation before it comes in because the FDA is going to audit the broker or the customer that's bringing that material in and... You know, they have to have all this – the FDA has to have this this plant registered in their reportable food register – or I'm sorry, their um, plant registration. I got confused with reportable food registry is what we do for recalls, but all these plants need to meet these requirements. They got to be identified with the FDA, and they, they're not going to get across the border if, if they don't have the right paperwork, they don't have the right identification. Okay. But yeah, they, you know, there's still issues with adulteration out there. There's still issues with um, economic adulteration where you think you're buying, you know, mackerel or mahi mahi and it's not that species of fish, Mm -hmm. you know, or tuna. Um, There's olive oil that are sometimes.
0: Oh, that's a big one.
1: Tainted with. With soybean oil or some other cheap oil and honey juices, honey, yeah, honey.
0: honey's a big one. Yeah. yeah, I've read about all those, and and people, you don't know what you're getting. Yeah. That's why I buy my honey local, so I know I'm getting honey. Yeah.
1: It goes back to supplier certification programs. Yeah, I'm
0: certifying my own supplier <laughs> That's in right. that case because yeah. I want to make sure I got the right honey. So you, um, oh, I want to talk about you leaving Heinz. So I know that you you left Heinz. And that was a, a layoff situation. And I was as I was helping you to find a new job. Yeah. And it just seemed like a natural fit that you'd be perfect for StarKist. And this job had been open for a long time. They were so picky. And I was leaving on vacation. I sent your resume. They <laughs> called me and said, we want to talk to him. And I'm like, here's his number. Go for it. And that is not how I operate. Yeah, I don't do that. It was
1: quick. Yeah, and it was right around Christmas. It was it right was. before Christmas. It was. I got let go on a Monday, um, and I think by Wednesday, you had already submitted the resume, and they were calling me. They're yeah. calling you.
0: Yeah, and, and it was I think a, a Thursday or a Friday. Thursday. Or they called. And you said you started the conversation, and they said, "Could you come down here right now?" Yeah. And you told me you went and ironed your pants and yeah. your shirt. I
1: was ironing my suit when you called me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and you and you left. Now yeah. I was going to Punta Cana for a wedding. So I had no I had no contact with you whatsoever. The whole week I was gone. So I come back and I'm I literally I'm on the plane as soon as my phone pinged that I was able to have contact, I called you. And you said, yeah, they just gave me an offer. Yeah. And I was like, wow, this was a fast turnaround.
1: It was. I was shocked. Yeah. Um, I was shocked on two fronts. One, I've never experienced anything that quickly of, you know, getting hired by a company. And the second one was as soon as my time with Heinz was over, I wasted no time and tried to start my own company. Yes, (laughs) And so being hired by Starkist so quickly kind of. Put a damper on my uh, starting my own company. I know, so. but
0: talk about but it when, worked out in your own company is your your love of ice cream. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Hey, you know, there's still time. Yes, we can still we can still do ice cream. Absolutely. Okay, so StarKist opened a whole new world because now you were getting to go to islands and other countries. Yeah. So talk about. I mean, you can mix your food safety. Tell us a few stories about. About going, which island you go to, the Samoa Islands?
1: American Samoa. So, yeah, I didn't, I had no idea. I didn't even know what American Samoa was. So, <laughs> so oh, Starkist, your education
0: let you down, huh?
1: Yeah, yeah it did. <laughs> so, Starkist's largest processing facility was on the island of American Samoa, which to my surprise was actually a US territory. Yep, I knew that. Yeah. Okay. And it's at the end of the time zone. Yep. So,
0: which time zone?
1: The end of the time zone before <laughs> you get to that international dateline, where it right. crosses.
0: So, but how long does it take to get there?
1: Twenty four hours.
0: And how what route do you take?
1: So, typically, you got to fly to the west coast, but it, but you got to get to Honolulu. The only way to get to American Samoa from the United States is through Honolulu. Okay. You got to get on Hawaiian Airlines. And at the time, there was it depends on the season. In the winter time, I think there was two, two flights a week. And then in the summertime, there were three flights a week. So, so
0: once you went, you couldn't come home no, like right. the this, next day.
1: Yeah. So no, this wasn't a, you know, typically for me, tra- I traveled a lot in my career. It was, you know, go to a plant for two or three days, you turn around and come back home. Mm-hmm. No, not with this case. Um, when I started working for StarKiss, now you're you're going to these places that are remote, and you're there for two weeks, 14, 15 days straight at a time before you before you came back. Mm-hmm. Number one, took took so long to get there. Number two, the travel was expensive, so mm-hmm. you really had to plan and prepare for your trips and create these agendas and who are who, what you what were you going to do, who are you going to meet, mm-hmm. and and lay these agendas out for two weeks right. so that you had a good trip
0: and. You were in the in the actual processing plants. Is that what they were they were actually processing?
1: Yep. So Starkist is the you know, there's three US companies that manufacture tuna, but Starkist is the only US manufacturer of tuna that controls the whole supply chain. So they didn't own the boats the time I was there. They had gone from owning the boats and transitioning to, you know, contracting these fishermen to go out, but they controlled the supply chain. They they controlled the fishermen, they, they knew who who were the good ones, who were the bad ones. They controlled that, so we controlled the tuna coming in. We didn't. We did end up buying some loins, but it was a very small percent of our business. Mm-hmm. Whereas our competitors, they were majority of their product was buying loins off the open market. You know, it's kind of like buying wheat or corn. They buy these loins from China, from the Philippines, from um. Vietnam, mm-hmm. South Korea, um, and then they would, you know, have to inspect that quality in.
0: Now, were you processing the actual fish in, in the Samoa Islands or were you getting it frozen off the ships?
1: Yep. So the fish, because the boats are so large, these purse seiners are so large. Some of these purse seiners, I can't remember the number, but they ha- they would have like 10 to 20 deep wells inside the vessel and so you know what we call Metric, metric tons metric tons of fish would come off these boats frozen solid so to preserve the fish because tuna is a species of fish that have to keep moving to regulate their body temperature once tuna stop moving they actually begin to rot on the inside so their respiration changes and they they overheat so tuna have to constantly keep swimming. They they're not a fish that's that stays still. So once you've captured the tuna, you've got a short period of time to get those tuna from the net into the boat, into cold, very cold water. So the first thing these boats would do is they'd bring the nets in and the 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 the, the, the containers or the vessels would have um the Gosh, I'm losing my thought here. Um, What do you call those things?
0: I don't know. You mean talking about the gnats or the...
1: No, the the wells. Okay, back to the wells. Okay. So the wells in the boat would be salt water. They'd have salt water brine in them to get the temperature down. Once those wells were filled with the fish, then that water was pumped to an empty well, and there were coils in those wells then that would then freeze the fish okay so they would be like minus five degrees Celsius so we're
0: freezing them to death
1: yeah free, they <laughs> preserve the fish yeah, yeah literally
0: <laughs> I mean we weren't killing them before you put them in there right they were well just, they were
1: dying fast because they yeah. weren't moving right yeah
0: so um how big are tunas
1: so there's there's different kinds of tuna there's okay. this what we call the skipjack tuna that could be any size from your hand to maybe eight pounds, okay, and then the 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 yellowfin tuna,
0: mm-hmm.
1: that tuna could be up to two to two hundred fifty pounds, okay, and then the um, are
0: you talking about like six foot long, eight foot long? Oh yeah, okay,
1: yeah, and then the albacore tuna, um, they could be anywhere from they they had the widest variation. They could be anywhere from fifty pounds up to two hundred pounds.
0: Wow. Because I remember a long time ago, you had a picture of a tuna. You were holding one and I was like, and you had all the tuna be- behind you. And I was like, I thought tuna was like trout. No. I didn't know it was like.
1: Yeah. The skipjack tuna is like, like trout. Like trout but-
0: yeah. But I was thinking they were little fish. I didn't realize yeah. that it was these.
1: They're like sh- marlins. Yeah.
0: yeah. They were huge. So Basically, Starkist knew they were getting tuna. There was no other fish in there. Right. It was they monitored all their own fish?
1: So we, yep. When we unloaded the boats, the boats would get deducted for species that were caught that weren't. There was, there's, I don't know. There's like twenty different species of tuna out there, right? We were only really interested in four varieties: the the um, what we called, um, gosh. I can't remember what it was called. That doesn't matter. Yeah.
0: It had four four kinds yeah. you paid for.
1: So we had four four species of tuna that we were looking for. As those boats got unloaded and we graded the fish by size, we would throw out those species that that we weren't buying for, the net weight would be deducted from the vessel. So the vessel had no you know, and in, no incentive to capture pools of tuna that we didn't want. Okay. Yeah.
0: yeah. Did they take those tunas back and give them to somebody they else? They would use them as
1: bait or, yeah, we would give them back to them. They would probably use cut them up for bait or just take them back to the ocean for food.
0: Okay. And they caught tuna by net, right?
1: Yes. There's there's different types of vessels out there. Most of it was by net, but there are some vessels that were long liners. The albacore are typically caught by the long liners. So you're talking about miles and miles of of fishing line with, with hooks Dangling down, mm-hmm. you know, six to eight feet into the water off these lines, and the albacore would get hooked on those hooks, and then they'd reel this mile-long cable in with the the albacore caught on it. And then there were some vessels that this the the skipjack tuna would actually be um, caught with rod and reel. So really, you'd have hundreds of people on this small boat and just sticking a line with a hook on it and bringing the fish in.
0: That like, sounds like an expensive way to catch fish.
1: Yeah, but you know, there's people out there that want sustainable tuna. They think sustainable tuna means it's being caught with a rod and a reel or, you know, a pole. Pole on, pole line is what we call it
0: but most people are just concerned that you aren't catching like dolphins and Correct. things in the yeah. in the fish that's net. The,
1: that's the biggest issue right there so you know dolphins will only swim with tuna primarily along that Mexican Baja area there okay. so those those aren't good areas to to, to harvest tuna cuz you you know the the captains know the engineers and the captains know where these areas of the ocean where the dolphins are swimming with the tuna. So they just stay away from them. So to be dolphin certified free, the the company has to go through audits. The boats have to go through audits. Sometimes there's observers that ride on the boats that actually do live audits with the captains and these engineers to make sure that they're fishing in the right areas. They, they audit their paperwork. Um, they audit their handling procedures. If they do accidentally catch dolphins with tuna. They're supposed to release, you know, and not, you know, not bring that, you know, a purse scener is a net that then gets drawn in like a purse. They're not supposed to draw that in. They're supposed to let let that fish out. So there's different procedures and protocols that they're supposed to follow. Okay, But the biggest thing is just staying away from those, those areas of the globe where dolphins swim with tuna.
0: Yeah. Okay. So... You're on the Samoa, American Samoa. American Samoa, beautiful island, Island, yeah. Yeah, it it is beautiful.
1: Beautiful, yeah. It's not a touristy island. Uh, The people there are very religious. They're very family-oriented. They still live in tribes. Uh, There's a leader, you know, like we would have a mayor of a city. Mm -hmm. They would have a tribal leader. Okay. You know, a lot of uh, generations live together in the same household. Do they
0: speak English?
1: They do speak English. They do speak Samoan.
0: Mm-hmm. They speak Samoan when they don't want you to know what they're saying, right?
1: Right. Yep. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: And the uh I mean, you stayed in a regular hotel and
1: Right. Yep.
0: And I I you told me before like if there's like it's a weekend, you certainly get days off while you're there. You could go golfing. There was Yeah, there place. was a
1: golf course, yeah. 18-hole golf course on the island. Yeah. I would golf with some of the local Samoans and the people from the plant. Yeah. The one one thing I regret that I didn't get to do there was actually just take a boat out and just go snorkeling or scuba diving. I wish I could have had time to do that. You didn't do that. No, that's my biggest regret.
0: Huh. Are the beaches nice there?
1: The beaches are nice. Samoa is a volcanic island, so there are places where, you know, you got the, the heavy volcanic rock. Right. But it's beautiful.
0: Yeah. I remember one time you said that you got sick. I think you got a sinus infection or something. You had to go to the hospital. Yeah, my
1: first trip to American Samoa.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and, and you said that they gave you, at the end, they gave you a bill and it was like $5 for this. You know, uh, it was like well, they it's, itemized it. So they're it out. on
1: social medicine. Okay. Um, American doctors that come over to, you know, they get, you know, they get incentive incentives to come to American Samoa to work at the LBJ hospital, but it's uh, you know, I mean, they're not gonna do surgeries, you know, major surgeries, mm-hmm. but um they can take care of things like strep throat or they there's a lot of people on the island with diabetes, unfortunately. And mm-hmm. but um yeah, it's a social medicine program there on the island. So a lot of people aren't really paying a lot of money f- like we do here in the States. It's subsidized by the government.
0: Yeah, but you told me it was really funny that you yeah. just you felt like you were back in the fifties or right.
1: something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Getting the drugs.
0: So I take it Sarkiss was the biggest employer on the island.
1: The government actually was. Starkist really? was number two. Yeah, there was a military base on the island and you know, the government was pretty big there. Okay. Yeah.
0: So you, the frozen fish came in, and you canned it there.
1: Yes, we did cans and we did pouches. So the frozen fish comes in once we're ready. Well, once once the fish are sized. So the sizing is important because the fish are actually pre cooked by uh, by size, and you can't cook small fish with big fish, right? Because you would overcook the small fish, trying to get the big fish cooked properly. So we would c- pre-cook the fish to get the skin and be able for the the bones to come out easily. Okay. And then the can the tuna is chopped, put into a can or a pouch, added with the vegetable broth or flavorings. Sometimes it's garlic, sometimes it's other. And then it's canned and then it goes into a retort because it's a low acid canned food.
0: Now, Starkist has really made great strides in all these different flavors.
1: Yes, they have. Because we used yeah. to just
0: have tuna yeah. to make our tuna casserole or our tuna salad. And I think those are the only two things we ever made with tuna.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: And then they came out with a uh, lemon pepper. Lemon pepper. A chili. Yep.
1: Yeah. A sweet chili. Ranch.
0: Oh, all kinds. Yeah. And I learned something from uh, from one of your— co-workers, Glenn Mast. Glenn Mast, yeah. yeah. He's the man. Yeah, I know. He knows his tuna. And he said, you want good tuna? Always buy the one in oil. Yeah. Especially olive oil.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, if you go to all these other countries, you know, so Starkist had a plant in American Samoa. We also had a plant in Africa and a plant in South America in Ecuador. Mm-hmm. If you go to Europe or if you go to these other destinations, the, the local people they won't eat tuna in water it's nasty to them whereas in the us it's you know probably 80% of the consumption is tuna in water versus tuna in oil
0: because some diet plan told us that yeah. fat is bad and yeah. so take all the fat all the oil the natural oil out of the tuna replace it with spring water and you have, suddenly have something healthy right i mean it really our whole the way we eat just simply tuna casserole Totally changed the whole flavor. Changed once we went to oil, and sometimes I have to go to the grocery store and dig for it.
1: Yeah, it's, they'll be it's they'll usually be on the bottom shelf. That's yeah, for sure. It's, it's not a big seller. No,
0: it's hidden because people don't realize, and it's better for you. It tastes better. It's a better product. Yeah,
1: yeah. That the oils that are in the tuna are good fats. Mm-hmm. You know, they're yeah. healthy fats,
0: and they don't, and they don't,
1: and a lot of it now is, you know, we're, we're you know Starkist was selling a lot of tuna in oil with extra virgin olive oil. Yeah. So,
0: yeah, so is tuna one of those products that as far as food safety goes, is an easy product to handle or is that a difficult?
1: You know, that's a good question because t- I would say in you know, I was I worked at StarKist for 7 years. Tuna to me is the safest food out there. Um, you know, but but the FDA made it so complicated. They, you know, so it's hard to explain, but tuna is a scombroid toxin-forming fish. In English? (laughs) (laughs) So there's only a couple species of fish that are scombroid toxin-producing fish. Mahi-mahi is one of them and tuna is the other. Okay. Um, So what happens is when that fish stops swimming, as I said earlier, the tuna does begin to start rotting from the inside out. So what happens is this scombroid bacteria starts breaking down the muscles and it starts creating these toxins. So if the fish is allowed to go to an extreme temperature and an extreme temperature is, let's say, 80 to 100 degrees, and let's say that fish is mishandled for a period of 7 to 14 days Maybe 21 days you're pushing it, but that scombroid bacteria is growing, growing, forming toxins. Some people, it's not a it's not a fish allergy, but it's like getting stung by a bee. You get this scombroid toxin in your body, and you and your body starts having an allergic reaction. Okay. So you might have your tongue swell, your throat to swell, you might start feeling. Your skin to be heated and gets red. Um, you know, in extreme cases, people are going to be short of breath, feel like they're maybe having a heart attack. Um, so that that those are the symptoms of ingesting tuna that is, you know, high levels of scombroid toxin in it. So the biggest thing with tuna is controlling the temperature. And the way the industry is today, I mean, there hasn't been a scombroid toxin issue in tuna since probably the 70s. okay? But the FDA keeps this on the top of the top of the ranks as, oh, it's a high risk food.' It's, it's an issue out there. you know they just they regulate we got in you know, I said earlier that typically food plants are getting re- inspected every three years. Well, the tuna plants are getting inspected every year All right? because the FDA thinks scombroid is still a high risk. It's a risk, but it's not a high risk. The, the industry has understood this and they've put this, the necessary processing steps in place to make sure it doesn't happen because we know it could be tragic to the industry, right, mm-hmm. and to the whole supply chain. Um, so it kind of drives me a little bit, it drove me a little bit crazy that. I mean, you
0: have to be wreck the way you describe, you it, you have to be, be reckless, reckless oh, to have this happen.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it was a critical control point in our HACCP plans. That's one of the reasons why seafood needs a HACCP plan is to control the scombroid formation. But, um, it's, it's, it's controlled. It's really, the industry has done a great job and, and they've all worked together, you know, um, we we all you know all the tuna industries around the world belong to these organizations, and they all work together on this type of food safety stuff.
0: Yeah, because one bad word and it's yeah, it's over.
1: Well, and that's the thing too with tuna because there's only three players. That, you know, Bumblebee had an issue, and they did a recall, and everybody thought it was everything. You know, mm-hmm. so a bumblebee or a star or a chicken-in-the-sea recall can affect the other two.
0: Mm-hmm. So they all have to— Because
1: they're all closely associated, and even people, though they're separate.
0: Yeah, people, people think of these as three brands but one company.
1: Yeah, but that's, they're three separate companies. I know, that's how yeah. they look at yeah. it. Yeah. But one mistake by somebody impacts the whole industry.
0: So, was there a big difference between the American Samoa processing and the one in Ecuador or the one in no, Africa? All,
1: no, they were all the same. So, Starkist, um, the culture, the way they controlled the supply chain was the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: They're a Korean we're all, company, right?
1: South Korean company. Yep. Yeah. They were actually started by, um, you know, the guy that, um, Kim's his name. He was actually started out as a fisherman supplying fish to American Samoa for Starkist. And then he bought boats and then he kept growing and investing and then became this big, uh, owner of Dongwan food industries.
0: Yeah. So which facility did you enjoy going to the most?
1: Um, actually it was kind of a, treat to go to all three of them because of their differences. Mm -hmm. So American Samoa, large facility, right? I mean, they were processing millions of tons of fish a day. Um, People there are so nice, so friendly. They really cared about what they did. It was their livelihood, right? Mm -hmm. Because there wasn't a lot of places to work on the island. Ecuador, was a great place to go again the same thing people really cared about it it was their livelihood but the plant the people the the difference is when you go to south america a lot of the people that work in the factories have an advanced degree so really we, we think it's a big deal here in the united states to go to college and get a bachelor's or a master's degree right and mm-hmm. then you go get a a real job a non-factory job right mm-hmm. but in these other countries it's a big deal for these people to get a technical degree after their grammar school, some of them are called grammar schools. Once they graduate, they go to a, a technical school and they become trained to do advanced math and problem solving skills. And they're they're working in the factory. And they're the best employees to work with because you don't have to give them a lot of direction. You can point out the issue or give them the expectations and they 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 deliver, you know. American Samoa again, great people, but you really had to spell it out for them. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. A lot of people probably didn't have much of a 6th grade education on that island, but
0: so they didn't, Again, great they didn't think people who they didn't really care for themselves. They you did exactly what you told them, exactly yeah. how you told them, exactly and the exact steps a good you way told to put
1: them. It. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But the ones in Ecuador actually were kind of like what you in the beginning when you said you taught the people on the line to actually right. do things, so in Ecuador you probably could teach those people to do things on the line that you didn't have right.
1: to it was a lot easier. Yeah, and they understood it better and they and they, it was sustainable. It was very sustainable because they, they really cared. They wanted to do more, you know? So, are we
0: getting the same tuna out of Ecuador as we're getting from the American Samoa Islands? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just and then
1: different Af- parts of the ocean.
0: Now, where in Africa did you
1: go? So, Starkist um, through Dongguan bought a plant in uh, Senegal. So, okay. Dakar, Senegal. I had never been to Africa before. And um, so, The Dongwon portion of the business, the South Koreans were trying to get this plant started, but they couldn't get it sustainable. There were some labor issues. Um, They had some. They just had some difficulty communicating, you know, with the people. So our engineer and myself went into Dakar, and we worked with them. Um, Our our uh, VP of operations went down there. He he helped. We just had to. We just turned it around because of the trust that the people had with us, better communication, and um, I, I, I think we could just teach them how to do the processes better. So it was more sustainable, and we turned the, the we turned the plan around, and they became a big producer of pouches for us.
0: How big is that plant?
1: I can't exactly remember the the tonnage, but it out of the three, it was the smallest.
0: How many people? They probably had
1: about five hundred people working there. Yeah.
0: Yeah. See, I like your definition of small. I'm thinking
1: thirty people. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's a lot of labor involved with cleaning tuna. So, in Samoa, just for an example, big plant, thousand people per ship just cleaning fish.
0: What's involved in cleaning tuna?
1: So, cleaning tuna, it's coming out of that pre cooker. They're they're taking off the head. Somebody's take oh, so
0: it goes in the cooker, complete fish.
1: Complete fish. Okay. Yep. Comes out of that cooker, cooled. People on the line then are deheading it. Okay. They are filleting it, taking the bones out, okay. and then taking these fillets and putting them in specific trays to be weighed to go to the filler. So okay. all that, the skin, you know, the skin's got to come off with the scales. The bones got to come out, so there's no bones in the product. Nobody wants bones in tuna. Mm-hmm.
0: But yet we don't nope. mind bones in our canned salmon. Right. You know, that's absolutely fine. <laughs> uh, I don't know, the last can I thought I did, saw it in there.
1: Yeah, but the, the market has changed because Starkus became a big seller of canned salmon. So, okay. so we had to actually go to start selling salmon like we do tuna. We had to find these packers in, in Alaska and in the West Coast that would actually take the salmon and – Debone it and skin it like tuna and put it in the small cans like just the fillet pieces because, you know, the canned tuna or the canned salmon that your mom or grandparents Uh would buy, mind saying, they knew how to handle it. They'd take it out, take out the bones, the cartilage, make the salmon patties and everybody was good.
0: I did that today's in the last consumer, in the last year. I know I've done that.
1: Today's consumer. Oh, oh my, no,
0: they would be freaked out. They
1: were freaked out. Because we the getting skins complaints. in there
0: and the but the little teeny bones, they just dissolve.
1: Right. You yeah. don't
0: I mean you could probably throw all the bones in there, they all dissolve.
1: Most of them were just very very soluble in your mouth. Yeah. yeah,
0: you just take that spine out of there. I mean, I'm not gonna tell you why I enjoyed it, but I wasn't afraid of it. Right. I didn't look at it and go, Oh, there's something wrong with this.
1: Yeah, yeah. We had consumers today's consumer, some of them buying that product and just finding it totally disgusting and not even eating it, and then wanted their money back because they didn't know what they were buying.
0: Oh yeah, and and it and it it had the oil content and everything. It It was
1: the label said exactly what was in the can. This product contains skin and bones.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I've always bought it. I never even thought about that at all. I'm gonna have to go buy the new one and see what it's like. Yeah. Maybe I'll like that better. So after they took all the bones and all the skin, everything, and they put now this is a big assumption on my part. If it's a nice compact piece, then they could use that as the higher level. All the little chunks and pieces went in the uh, in the 49 cent can.
1: Right. So there's two types. There's chunk style Mm -hmm. and then there's the solid pack. So yeah, those nice fillets would go to the solid pack product and that was kind of formed into a puck and put into the can, whereas the chunk and the pieces were put into this filler where it was going through a drop and uh, filling it by the top of the can in chunks. Yeah, chunk filler.
0: I, I kind of buy my tuna based on price. The higher price, I figure it's the higher quality. It's the 49 cent can. Yeah. It's probably it's all still pieces. very. I
1: mean, it's... You know, it's just kinda like, you know, um, what kind of quality of car do you want? Do you want the Yugo or do yeah. you want the denali? You yeah. know so it's the same with tuna. Do you want it's all good quality, it's just yeah. how you define it.
0: Right. So if I don't want broken pieces, I go up to the higher yeah. price stuff. But yeah. if I don't care about all the broken my shredded wife, ones.
1: My wife Denise was an avid consumer of the canned cheap tuna to make tuna salad, but once, we, once I started getting her hooked on the pouch, um, she liked it, but she still prefers paying the price for the can, the regular can too.
0: <laughs> I prefer the can over the pouch. Oh, do you? Yeah, because I think the pouch is too smushed.
1: Too I don't smushed?
0: Know. Yeah, it's kind of...
1: Well, it's s- because it's... Smushed. <laughs> well, it is flat. It's flat because of that thermal processing yeah. again, where you don't want it to be... You know, can't be too chunky. It's got to be flat. And and no no pouches can be touching each other on the trays when they go into the retort because that affects the time-temperature relationship.
0: Okay. All right. Well, I'm not a big consumer of tuna, so. Yeah. But, you know, I'm still back on the tuna salad and the... You know, no, but our,
1: the R and D team led by Glenn Mass, they did a great job with all the different flavors. Oh, I know. It really had opened up the market to more consumption of tuna.
0: I'm sure it did. But now, on at these plants, there was a lot of training involved in butchering uh, tuna.
1: Actually, there is because the the plants created by yield. So, pounds of fish coming in and pounds of meat going out is how the plants are gold and the the whole financial is set up on recovery tuna tuna meat recovery so albacore you know you're looking at like a 62 to 64% recovery of meat whereas the the skipjack tuna was more like 54 to 56% recovery
0: okay now, we talk a lot about quality control, quality assurance, food safety. Because when I was always taught this about, as a layman's terms, quality control was like, you know, is it the right temperature? Is it the right weight? Is it, you know, meeting all the parameters? Quality assurance was more like reaching for the what you wanted it to be. Like we have the minimum for quality control. You're just measuring things. You don't care. You're just reporting it. But quality assurance was more like looking at it. How do we improve it? How do we, like in your case, yield? How do we get better yield out of this? Things like that.
1: No, right. You're right. Quality control is more reactive. It's more defined. And quality assurance is trying to be more proactive. How do we do better? How do we make improvements?
0: Yeah. And food safety, is it just safe for us to eat?
1: And food safety is like now the big umbrella over everything is just, you know, is the plant clean? I mean, food safety has evolved from... The product, the equipment to the environment, right? Making sure that even the environment, the manufacturing plant is clean and it's designed well so that it can be cleaned easily.
0: And that's where sanitation comes in.
1: That's where sanitation comes in. Exactly. Yep.
0: Now, back to your dairy part. That, you know, like people think about you make these products. And I know this is what my misconception I, I find with people is that they think you guys make the plant product all day. And then before you go home, everybody cleans up. And then the next day they come in and make it some more. Yeah, And I don't think they realize that, first of all, plants run 24 hours. And then some products, they don't ever, they don't break the equipment down and clean it. They clean it by running, you know, chemicals and water through it, which we call clean in place. Right. So talk about that for a bit and how the difference sanitation comes into the food safety.
1: Yeah. So... In my, in, in, you know, the plants that I touch, it's always about we're cleaning to be successful for the production run. We're not cleaning because the plant's dirty or because the production's over. We're cleaning to have a good successful run. Cause like you said, you know, gone are the days where you're running two shifts, you know, two, eight hour shifts of production. Then you're cleaning on night shift every day. That doesn't happen anymore now with, you know, Food des- you know, food plant design and food safety and controlling the environment and better design of equipment. Now we're able to manufacture products, you know, two weeks, 15 days straight before we have to do a clean. Now, obviously, there's some cleaning that – there's operational cleaning that has to happen. I don't want people to think that we never shut down, but we're talking about maybe shutting down for 30 minutes or an hour – and some specific equipment are being cleaned operationally so that the product maintains its quality and food safety state. But now we've gone to these long extended manufacturing runs. And so it's it's critical that the cleaning is done right up front. You're not cleaning because a plant's dirty or, or you're done. You're cleaning to have these successful long production runs.
0: But these, this equipment was built with that in mind. I mean, these equipment companies build this so yeah. cleaning can happen. In the
1: dairy industry, yes. But some of the other industries I've been in, we, we've transformed into that. We've mm-hmm. gotten better equipment in so that we can do those runs better.
0: Now, in dairy, because it's liquid and they're running it all through these pipes and everything, they just flush them.
1: Yeah, clean in place. Yeah, yeah.
0: just flush but them there's a clean. lot of
1: exterior cleaning too. You yes. still got to take valves apart, gaskets apart, you know, there's a lot of pathogens that can st- stick in valves and in gaskets if you're not careful.
0: So what is your thought on the uh, in the dairy industry of raw milk, people wanting to buy raw milk that's unpasteurized?
1: If, if you're not drinking raw milk within 24 hours of milk in the cow at a cold temperature, then you shouldn't be touching it. I mean, I drank raw milk working on a dairy farm because I knew where it came from. It was fresh. I drank it within 24 hours of it being collected but you know i i would not i i mean i wouldn't allow my kids or my family to buy raw milk you don't know where it's coming from it's very susceptible to bacteria growth obviously because of the nutrients in the milk and i you know pasteurization is there for a reason
0: man so when you go to the grocery i've seen raw milk i didn't never looked at the date on it so they're Saying that it's good for a week or two,
1: uh, it, it depends. I'm not sure. You know, it depends who you're buying it from and what they what controls they have in place. You know, how clean is their environment?
0: Yeah. All right. I mean,
1: when you're milking, a, I mean, I worked on a farm. When you're milking a cow, your parlor, you know, has manure in it. You're mm-hmm. you're cleaning the udder. You're sterilizing the udder as best you can with iodine in the wash solution, but that milk is not bacteria-free.
0: What's the advantage to the raw milk? Why are people doing it?
1: You know, it people believe that raw milk are higher in nutrients because you're not, you know, pasteurizing it, mm-hmm. you know. So, they feel that anything that's cooked, you're ruining some of those nutrients. So, they think raw milk's better for you.
0: Okay. Yeah, because I the only time I ever take anything that's unpasteurized is is apple cider. You know, yeah, and it's usually I bought it. They, I saw them press it, and I bought it. And it's not good. It's good for a week.
1: It's good for a week, and then it
0: and then it starts turning into some lovely vinegar and stuff. Yeah. Um, what is what is happening in pasteurization? What are they actually doing when they pasteurize something?
1: So what we're doing in pasteurization is we're actually killing the bacteria that is gonna that's gonna make that product spoil.
0: So just cooking it, they're heating it.
1: Yeah,
0: and is it? Does it kill all the nutrients, or is it just killing bacteria?
1: It it just kills bacteria, right? I mean, it might change the flavor, obviously, but it's not. It's not destroying. People also have this belief that if canned vegetables are less nutritious than frozen vegetables, that's not true either, because fresh vegetables are being canned. They're being preserved at Mm -hmm. the peak of. Of their freshness as well. I mean, frozen vegetables are pre-cooked before they're frozen. You don't just take vegetables off the farm and put them in a plastic bag and freeze them. They still have to be blanched to stop the enzyme activity. Yeah. So, yeah, it's...
0: They're way more attractive, though. Canned ones are not attractive.
1: Yeah. It depends if your grandkids... What textures they like.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I guess I've never, I don't, I don't eat canned vegetables, but. Oh,
1: I have grandkids that don't like frozen beans, but they'll eat canned beans because of the texture.
0: Oh, I've never tried them on it.
1: Yeah. I'm usually afraid. But there's of, no difference in nutrients, but yeah. Yeah.
0: I've, I stayed away from canned food for the sodium level. That's yeah. my big thing the sodium level, but I never thought of trying the kids on that.
1: But you can buy canned vegetables with no sodium.
0: Yeah, I know. I know. I'm one of those people. I, I eat mostly fresh vegetables. I even stay away from frozen vegetables. <laughs> I really like vegetables and I like them fresh. fresh. Yeah. You know, so that's green beans are bought fresh, broccoli's bought fresh.
1: That's the one advantage of having a global market is that we can get strawberries all year. We can get yes. lettuce all year and all these vegetables year round.
0: Yeah. I don't think people realize that because when we were young, I remember we got strawberries in June.
1: Yeah. That was it.
0: You got orange. Then you,
1: you, you canned strawberry jam, yeah. so you could have strawberries on your toast in the winter. because yeah. you weren't getting it any other way.
0: And you had oranges, the best oranges in December and January. Yeah, you know. Yeah, you, your
1: your your relatives would bring them up from Florida in cases.
0: Yeah, you had only fresh tomatoes, sliced tomatoes on a sandwich in the summer. Yeah, you didn't have. You didn't, there was no tomato in your sandwich in in January. You know, part of me misses that because it was one of those things where you look forward to something like that.
1: Yeah, definitely appreciated home canning more than we do now.
0: Yeah. Well, I do home canning. I canned spaghetti sauce last week. This year, I don't know if, if everybody's talking about this, but we certainly are around here. Our gardens went crazy, absolutely crazy. And I got, I planted the same amount of tomato plants I always plant, if I get three jars of spaghetti sauce, I just make it and we eat it like that week and salive. Go on. This year I had so many. I probably canned a dozen <laughs> jars of it. And that takes a lot of tomatoes just to make right. that because I wasn't putting anything yeah, you're else in them. Down. Oh yeah. And then the apple trees went crazy. And I picked apples from several trees in the neighborhood, it's people that didn't want the apples because they're like, Last year, they had no apples, zero. These trees didn't produce a single apple. This year, I I picked two bushels in about 15 minutes off my neighbor's tree. Then I went to another tree, picked a couple of bushels off that, and I started making applesauce. So I've been making applesauce like crazy. And I made the applesauce, and I gave it to one of my children, and he said to me, He goes, that was good, but you put too much sugar in it. I go, excuse me. I didn't put a single grain of sugar in there. Wow. Nothing. There's nothing in that jar except apples. (laughs) I cooked the apples down and that's it. And he was like, wow, tastes like you put sugar in Mm -hmm. it. And I said, I just used three different neighbors' apples. And I know one was Granny Smith, one was like a gala, and one was um, a Red Delicious or something. No, No, I think it was Red Delicious, but. I just blended them all together. Yeah. Because I just kept cooking apples. So it's crazy. We yeah, we canned a lot I of love, stuff.
1: love canned homemade apple sauce.
0: Yeah, well, I'll give you some before you leave. Great. You'll get some uh, some of that. But we had um it was a bumper crop this year and it was it was really good. So, um now we have moved on from Star-kissed, and you've got a whole... You're you're like in another food category.
1: Yeah, in a food category I've never been in. Salty Snacks. Yeah. Um, it's been a joy with this company. Um, great company to work for. They really have a great culture about keeping people safe and taking care of people. And uh, number one priority is uh, the people. And then the, the second thing is customers, obviously, because we're a big co-manufacturer and private label maker. But... Um, yeah, we make food fun. That's for sure.
0: Okay, name all the different snacks you make. Potato chips, we make. Pretzels.
1: All, well, well, we're the we're the largest hand kettle potato chip maker in the United States. Okay, we um, that's our number one bread and butter. Then <laughs> all the other potato chips, the ripple, the ridges, the the smooth cut, and then we do tortillas chips, the bite size, and um. Then we do extruded cheese puffs and cheese balls.
0: <laughs> mm. That's the one thing I will never I don't like those,
1: but oh they're I'm good. Not, Kids like them.
0: I heard years and years I heard this not too long ago, but it was years ago, I guess. frito Lay when after the World War II was done and they had all this powdered cheese and they didn't know what to do with it. They had no idea what to do with this powdered cheese from you know they were using to make, I guess, macaroni cheese for the for the war effort. They gave it to Frito Lay and said, see if you can do something with it. And that's where we got our the powdered cheese flavoring on top of Doritos and oh, wow. cheese puffs and everything like that. It came through a super, you know, supply of it from the government that said, Here, do what you want with it.
1: Yeah, that's interesting.
0: I know, isn't that weird? Yeah, I think we'd never some have that. Things
1: like that happen. Yeah. yeah.
0: So you make tortilla chips, and um, the uh, use flaxseed, don't you?
1: No, we use corn. You we,
0: don't? Don't you put flaxseed in some of the multigrain ones?
1: No, we don't. We, we don't. got we got out of the multigrain before I started. Why? I don't know. Wasn't a big seller.
0: Oh, that's my favorite one.
1: Yeah. So wasn't yes. a big seller. They got out of the multigrain. Um, we got all the sesame, too, because of allergy issues and controlling allergens in the plant. And that wasn't a big seller either. But no. I-
0: so you don't lose f- flaxseed in anything? No. You know why I asked that question? Is that my grandson is allergic to flaxseed. Wow. And they don't put it on the label. Hmm. Not all the labels have it because it's a small amount, a trace amount, so it goes below that 2%. Yeah. They don't put it. And some of them just call it grains. You know, like how they say it's spices. Yeah. They call so we have to be careful of everything he eats because wow. he's highly allergic to flaxseed. And it's not considered an allergen because yeah. sesame oh, seed yeah. just made it up there. Right. And they're hoping flaxseed makes it real soon. Mm. So that we won't have this issue. Right. Because we don't know what to feed him sometimes. I mean, he's only he's not quite two years old.
1: Well, maybe he'll grow hopefully he'll grow out of it.
0: They don't know. They're yeah. afraid to even test him for it anymore. It's so bad. Mm. And, you know, that's the one we, I, cause we eat, I like the multi-grain, um, tortilla chips from Aldi. Okay. So we can't have them when he's here. Mm. We have to go straight regular.
1: Yeah. But the, the tortilla chips are, I, I had no idea how tortilla chips were made until I started this job and we take corn and we cook it and then we soak it to get, the corn to, to soften up so we can grind it. We mm-hmm. grind the corn into a masa paste. Mm-hmm. And then we press that masa paste into sheets and we cut out the, the, the shapes and we bake to get the moisture to a specific level before it goes into the fryer. That's it's it. just corn and oil. That's it. That's it.
0: We know, I heard years ago about how they make flakes, and a, and a, uh, yeah, the they are pretty
1: close. Yeah. Well,
0: def- they take the corn and I guess they soak it or whatever. Yeah, they degerm off. it. Yep. And they put it through rollers to make it a squished flake, and then they bake it. And all that's in there is the water, the corn, and a little bit of salt that they cook it with. Yeah. And that is it.
1: Yeah. Same with tortilla chips. I mean, you just, just smash corn. it. Just corn and oil.
0: So every time you eat a cornflake, it's just one piece of corn smashed. <laughs> that's all it was. Yeah. And I don't know if it's, I've assumed it's baked. I don't think they fry.
1: No, that's probably flakes. baked. It's just yeah. a
0: baked. That's it. That's the whole process. Yeah. And they make millions of dollars off of this, except we cannot make it at home. So the um, have you found any different safety things in snack foods than you did in all these other processed foods?
1: Yeah. So this is a little different, right? Because now you've got a product that's baked and fried and now you're, post post lethality step you're applying a seasoning so obviously these spices you know the barbecue spices all these different chili powders and stuff like that you've got that risk of salmonella so all our suppliers have to certify that their seasonings that they sell to us are ready to eat that they have put in place into their food safety plans all those food safety controls that prevent that seasoning from being contaminated with with salmonella,
0: and that's the big difference. Yeah,
1: All so right. we got to make sure our plant is clean on the back end, post fryer, and um, we do swabbing just like you would in a frozen food plant or a bakery. You know, we swab the environment to make sure that we don't have any pathogens that can contaminate our equipment that then can potentially contaminate the product.
0: I tell people what swabbing is.
1: So swabbing is, you take a sponge, we call it a swab, but it's, it's like a gigantic Q-tip.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's a plastic handle with a sponge on it, and you typically swab a four-inch by four-inch square on pieces of equipment or product contact surfaces. And then we put that into a, a peptone broth, and then it goes off to a lab, and they they incubate it. They do what they got to do to get the micro microbes to grow, if there's any present. Then they culture them out, and then they can identify the different species of the bacteria.
0: How long does that take?
1: Well, it's gotten a lot better. It's now now they've got it down to some of this. Some of these pathogens can be detected in 48 hours, where you know back in the 80s it could take two weeks. So so you were producing
0: for two weeks and found that you had a contamination?
1: (laughs) Well, that's why I loved working in the low acid canned food industry because we were cooking it to death. So we didn't have that issue.
0: Well, you kind of prove one thing that I've always told quality people. If you get a job in the quality area, you can change food areas. You don't have to stay. If you're an R&D and you do R&D of I don't name something like candy or ice cream or soup or what. You're kind of stuck. You end up being an expert in that area because people always want to hire you for what you know. So it's the next candy company hiring you, the next candy company. So R&D people don't don't really change their area too much. But quality, you can go from company and you've proved it.
1: Right. And that was kind of what I said to myself when I was in college and taking food science classes. You know, I, there were, you know, some of my friends in class were sticking to, you know, this is where they wanted to focus. And I'm, I I was the opposite. I wanted to learn as much as I could about everything. You know, I, I took grains and you know, grains and bakery classes. I took fermented foods. I took p- processed foods. Uh, I did self studies where there wasn't enough students to take classes for like juice processing or fruit fruit processing or things like that. I just I went in with a mindset I wanted to learn as much as I could so that I could be uh, you know available to any company that wanted to hire me and not be pigeonholed. And, I, and I've kind of lived that in my 37 years. I've moved around all and, these different food groups.
0: And you've never had a break in your career either.
1: No, never had a break. Just, I'm ready for one.
0: You are? You don't tell everybody you're retiring, are you? <laughs> uh,
1: I'm getting close. Uh, I mean, I've been working since I've been 14 years old.
0: Yeah. Well, what it, do, you, do you enjoy going in the plants? Oh, I, mean, I love it. T- tell us a little bit of what it's like to go into a plant, because I don't think people realize how hot or cold or loud or big. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Well, um, yeah, it's, it's loud. There's a lot of things moving. Um, so going into a plant, typically you've got to wash your hands before you go in. You got to don air nets, sometimes specific uniforms or lab coats. Um, some, and you gotta wear earplugs and nowadays you gotta wear safety shoes so that you don't slip or or hurt your feet in the in the factory floor.
0: Oh, I was in a plant once where you had to walk through a uh,
1: uh, boot scrubber.
0: Yeah, you had to walk yeah. through this liquid and stuff so your feet had no, yeah. no dirt, germs or whatever. Some
1: plants have boots that you have to wear, like meat, meat plants to the plants. We had to wear boots. Uh, some plants that are more drier atmosphere it's just work boots, work shoes mm-hmm. but yeah you typically got to go through a boot scrubber or a foot bath or crystals. sometimes they'll throw down dry crystals that you have to walk through that have an antimicrobial effect on your shoes um, hard hat safety glasses most of the time so you, you know you're all donned up hairnet, earplugs, Lab coat, safety glasses, hair, uh, helmet,
0: and everybody has their name on them because you can't recognize them after this, right? Right. No, <laughs> you
1: can't recognize them. But um, yeah, it's it's hot. You know, the retort areas are usually hot because you got a lot of cooking vessels there with a lot of steam coming out because you're venting the retorts. The food, the meat plants are typically cold. They keep the mm-hmm. environment around 40, 40 degrees because hey, they yeah. want the the pathogens not to. Multiplier, you know, the hotter it is, the faster they grow. The chip plants uh, that I, the salty snack plants, they're some of them are hot in the summertime. You know, we got a plant in Phoenix. Sometimes it's brutal there in the summertime, but we've implemented air conditioning, um, employee water stations. They supply these like Gatorade popsicles, you know, electrolyte popsicles and stuff to keep people hydrated. But yeah, you, you know, there's odors, you know, the pickle plant when they when we sliced jalapenos, oh, oh it was brutal, right? Cuz the oils coming off the seeds and when you're cutting the jalapeno they slices,
0: they were they were goggles.
1: They had to wear goggles, they had to wear gloves. We had to change our policy on consuming food in the plant to allow them to have like a mint in their mouth, that sometimes that would relieve you know the the stress that they were under working with the jalapenos.
0: Yeah, I know you get that from garlic too.
1: Yeah, so it's just oh, slicing onions. You ever been in a onion ring factory? No,
0: that would be terrible.
1: Oh, <laughs> well, the here is the thing: the people who work in an onion ring factory, you never see them crying because they're they got used. You know, they get used to it mm-hmm. very quickly. But if you were a visitor, oh my gosh, you couldn't stand it.
0: Yeah, I think that a lot of the general public think that. Food plants are big kitchens, you know, and they think that there's people that go to work to cook the food, mm-hmm. you know, like you would go to a restaurant to cook the food. I don't think they realize that this is a highly automated, you know, plant that you're just out of
1: equipment. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And some of it is very hands off. These employees are not touching the food.
1: Yeah. And that's then true.
0: other plants, they're touching it continuously.
1: Right. You know, in the salty snacks. Um, once the potatoes are sorted, or any you know size issues, or you know issues with knots, or you know sometimes there's roots stuck to the potatoes. Mm-hmm. Once the once those potatoes get past that station, they're they're peeled, they're they're rinsed, and they're sliced, and uh, I mean, nobody's touching them.
0: Mm-mm. Not Even when they go in the back.
1: nope, not touched at all. No, yep. tuna, a lot of hands on use because of the de- you know skinning and deboning. Yeah. Um not a whole lot in the pickle industry, but you did have people that were hand packing pickles because mm-hmm. pickles are hard to fill in a in a in an automated filler. You can fill relish pretty easily, but mm-hmm. when it comes to the big dills or the little dills, those were all hand packed.
0: Yeah. Hand labor. Yeah, the pickle chips will just go like relish. Right. Yep. Not a problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: Soup was all, you know, didn't touch anything except on the raw side, Yet people on trim and pear tables doing potatoes and carrots and whatever yeah. before it was going into the soup kettles.
0: Yeah, I don't think they were... I was in a food plant and it was cold. It was a meat plant and mm-hmm. it was not a slaughter or anything. The meat came as yeah. an ingredient. They were yep. making...
1: uh the cuts.
0: They were making... Actually, they were making t- um, taco meat. Oh, okay. So browning it and adding the seasoning and sending it off to places like Taco Bell. They were making, they were slicing bacon. Yeah. But it was already smoked, all that stuff. They were just doing the end part of it. And so they, it was the summer and they said, make sure you bring your coat with you and, you know, long pants and everything and, and boots. And I went in there and they gave me gloves to wear. And I mean, winter gloves And then put the plastic glove (laughs) over top of it, you know, so we washed our hands, we put the gloves
1: on. And more protection. And we
0: put the other glove on. And I don't think people realize that, you know, another funny one that I always think is that you go to the deli at the grocery store and the employees there tend to think that the gloves are for them, like to keep their hands clean. And so you want some sliced meat and the person touches their yeah, nose. Right. And you say, Could you change your gloves? And they're like, they're just insulted. Like, why would I change my gloves? And I go, but you just touched your face. Yeah. And now you're going to touch my food. Yeah. And then I see them come out of the back with a mop in their hand and their gloves. And then they want to do handle your food. And I say, Could you change your gloves? I'm like what? And I said, Well, you were mopping. And they're like, Yeah, I had my gloves on. Yeah. And I'm like, that's the right. point. So I'm yep. in this food plant and this guy tells me after I do all this, he goes, I have to remind you, do not touch your face. Yeah, Don't touch anything with those gloves. Now we weren't doing anything with the food. We were just walking through and he said, don't touch anything. Right. And so when we get away from the food, then we'll take those gloves off and your winter gloves will be for you to hold onto handles. We were climbing ladders Very and stuff. stuff and we were doing that. Yeah, But I don't think people realize that those gloves are not for them. They're for the food.
1: Yeah, I'm a I'm a big believer in trying to get out of gloves as much as you can because it's a lot easier to wash and sanitize an employee's hands yes. than it is the gloves. You know, once the person has the gloves, you, you kind of lose control what they're doing with it. If it's ripped, you know, nothing's yeah. more embarrassing to find you know the finger part of a glove in a in a product, which has happened a couple times consumer returns uh, what's left of a glove or something like that. And you just think, ah,
0: well, I, an educated, an educated employee in a food plant I think is probably very safe without a glove. Yeah. But, yeah. and it's and, easier
1: to wash their hands.
0: Yeah. But I'm not so sure in some of these other oh, places. The sandwich
1: shops drive me crazy because they will Slice their meat, make your sandwich, and they still have the gloves on. And then they go handle your money. Yeah, the money is the dirtiest thing in the world. Right? Yeah,
0: I so. tell them no, no, thanks. But well, I think that we've covered about everything you can about quality. Yeah, I think I hope, so. I hope we haven't scared too many people. Do oh, you have I any? Do hope- you have any last stories for us or anything? I'll tell you, you did have one story for me, and if you don't want to tell it. We'll edit it out. Okay. But you told me about cleaning a kettle. That was from oh yeah that. Hadn't been had been continuously used. Yeah. You said forever.
1: Yeah, like so, since
0: the twenties.
1: Yeah, I'm not going to mention any names. Okay. But, so the, the the kettle was named Big Bertha. <laughs> <laughs>
0: How big was Bertha?
1: This this kettle was uh probably about twenty feet tall and probably. Six feet in diameter. It was big enough that a person could get into it. It would still be confined space. But Big Bertha is this big tank, and Big Bertha's got this big long shaft and just a propeller probably three feet from the bottom of the tank. That's it. No side scrapers, nothing like that. So Big Bertha was a a reservoir prior to filling. So the the product was made— The product was pre-cooked and heated and then everything came into Big Bertha. Then Big Bertha fed the fillers. Well, (laughs) one day we started getting complaints that – back to the ketchup story, right? It's kind of like that. These these products were blowing up because of gas production. And so – the plant goes back. We tell the plant to go look at retain samples. And the retain samples are not looking good. So we're like, what's going on? So we clean Big Bertha. We look at Big Bertha. We look at the process because there was heat exchangers involved. We went through the heat exchanger to make sure that we didn't have any pinholes that were contaminating the product. We went through this process with the Best intentions, just tore it apart, right? To put, tore it apart, put it back together, cleaned it, cleaned it, cleaned it. Still still having issues. And the product that was coming out of Big Bertha was a high profit, high margin product. So very critical to the business. Bottom line is, kept having the issues. Kept having the issues and couldn't understand why. The moral of the story is you got to get These tanks capable of doing cleaning in place, because what was happening was we finally got a camera, you know, one of those scope cameras, and we got a guy that got in the tank and he got underneath that propeller and that propeller was just the nastiest thing you've ever seen. We were cleaning the blades on the top, but we weren't cleaning the weren't getting the blades on the bottom.
0: And these are big blades.
1: These are big blades. What had happened was this line had run – this line runs 24-7. Forever. Forever. Years. High margin product. Went through a Christmas break where for the first time this plant was down for two weeks for some maintenance issues. So this this line was down for two weeks.
0: For the first time. Even
1: though the line was cleaned because we didn't clean it thoroughly – this product buildup underneath the blades was just, bacteria was just going to town on it. The you lot, said you bed. crawled in there. I did not crawl you in there. You didn't crawl but in there. we had somebody else. But crawl I got in to, there. I was there when we were showing live live images of what was underneath that.
0: This is like the camera you put down through the sewer lines and stuff.
1: These are, yeah. Yeah. This is, you buy brand new ones for this <laughs> yeah, type of work. Right. Yeah.
0: But you look and you see every single thing.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's terrible. So- Big Bertha got jerked out of there because it was way too big. You know, it's a continuous process. You had you had heat exchangers in line, so that the tank didn't need to be that big. So the process the line got optimized, the tank got ripped out. Um, better mixing, smaller tank, CIP put in place. Well, this
0: is one of those cases where they didn't fix it because it wasn't broken.
1: Wasn't broke. Wasn't broken until you had downtime. Yeah. yeah.
0: So it went for, and we were talking about years and years and years.
1: Right. And they never just, had an issue.
0: Yep. And then now they do. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. That was one I remembered you telling me about. Like, yeah. Like yeah. We hadn't torn this line. I'm thinking, you haven't torn this line down in years.
1: <sighs> just ran constantly.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, now better, better process, better product, right. probably. Yeah. Or just as good. Yep. All right. Well, I think we've covered everything we could ever cover. I appreciate your time.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: Yeah. I appreciate your yeah, stories. Yeah. I, I appreciate you explaining everything to us. Okay. And I've known you forever Yeah. and I didn't even realize how many products you did. Yeah. I never really thought about it. Well, thanks so much.
1: Yeah. Hopefully my next move is ice cream. Ah.
0: Oh, yeah. Tell me about the ice cream. You didn't bring me any
1: ice cream. No, (laughs) I didn't have time.
0: But you do make, I see them.
1: So that's my hobby business is making ice cream. Right now, it's I have eight grandchildren, so most of it's making ice cream for the family and all the birthdays.
0: And you make really interesting ice cream. We're not talking chocolate and vanilla.
1: Right, right. I've got probably 30 flavors. I've got alcohol-based flavors. it's, it's been interesting. I started baking ice cream when I was in food science at Ohio State. That was one of our projects in, in the dairy foods class and just stuck with me. And I've, you know, improved it over the years. And actually between my time at Heinz and Starkist, I actually got to take my formula at, at, and run it at the pilot plant at Ohio State because I wanted to see how it ran in a, at, a, at a pilot plant versus a kitchen. Did you well? It did well, except that we over-homogenized the product. We had too much pressure on the homogenizer, and it mm-hmm. made kind of like a mousse more than an ice cream.
0: Yeah. But that's trial and error.
1: Trial and error, That's right? the whole thing. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But, I mean, if you make ice cream, like there are certain things that I've made. I make jam and jelly, and everybody wants it for a gift. Yeah. So you have like endless gifts.
1: Same you thing can, with my ice cream. Everybody wants me to make ice cream for their birthdays or something.
0: Yeah, I mean you just anytime you want to give yeah. somebody a present, you just make some ice cream. Right? And then you just give them a quart and you eat the rest. Yeah. Oh, cuz I've seen some of the flavors. I've seen pictures of you having out the driveway, two or three going at a time. Right?
1: I've I'm up to 3 ice cream makers. Yeah. Oh man. I make it in mass. <laughs>
0: oh, I have to think of my favorite flavor to tell you to make me. Okay. Okay.
1: My most popular requested flavor is chocolate amaretto. Really? hmm
0: mm, Mine would be something in the salted caramel with chocolate. Mm. My thing is the it's not just the ice cream, but it's what you put
1: on it. Oh, see, I... I, my, my philosophy is to try to get the flavors, natural flavors. I don't try, I don't use artificial, so it's natural flavors. I make my own caramel. I make Mm. my own butterscotch. Um, I want the flavor to be in the ice cream so that you don't have to put anything on it. Like I make a blueberry cheesecake ice cream, mm -hmm. the, a coffee toffee. Yeah. The only flavor I make that you can put toppings on obviously is vanilla, but. I try to get the ice cream. But you cream. can't get
0: variegates and ribbons in it, can you? Sure I can. Do yeah. you? Yeah. Wow.
1: I even made a, a ice cream for a fundraiser um, at one of my employers where I, it was called the Elvis Presley Peanut Butter Sandwich. Okay. That was the name of the ice cream. So it was in a little cup, four ounce cup. Mm-hmm. Half of the cup was banana ice cream. Mm -hmm. Half of the cup was peanut butter ice cream. Mm -hmm. And then in the middle, I took an apple core and I cored out the middle. And in the middle, I put uh, strawberry ice cream or strawberry, strawberry pie filling. Oh, yeah. So banana peanut butter with strawberry pie filling. Okay. The Elvis Presley peanut butter sandwich.
0: See, I don't stir my ice cream up, you know. So if I have like salted caramel... And then put some chocolate on it
1: Yeah, because I don't
0: want to stir it. Right. You You just want it
1: drizzled on top.
0: No, I want it dumped. Lots of chocolate. (laughs) (laughs) I want it dumped. Like I don't like hot fudge because it melts the ice cream. Yeah. I want like Hershey
1: syrup. Right. I do too. My wife is a big fudge.
0: No. If there's a fudge ripple, I'm okay with that because it's cold.
1: Yeah. See, you've seen pictures of those Tupperware bowls that I use yeah. to freeze the ice cream in, once that ice cream is in there layer by layer, I can take a spoon or a spatula and I can ripple the flavors in there and then put another layer, ripple it.
0: Yeah. My The one ice cream that I dislike the most is cookie dough because that to me is just yeah. like lumps of sugar.
1: Yeah. My son likes cookie dough. I've made it a couple of times for him. Not my favorite to make. But no.
0: I don't like but cook. I did
1: buy safe refrigerated cookie dough right. that was pasteurized.
0: Right. I mean, every time you go to Dairy Queen, you get. Everyone, the kids always want cookie dough. Yeah. My favorite Dairy Queen Blizzard is a mud pie,
1: mm.
0: and you have to go to the Dairy Queen. Sometimes someone will hand you a mud slide, and I'm like, "No, it's a mud pie. It's it's the Hershey syrup, Oreo, and coffee."
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's what it is. So you could make it with the chocolate ice cream, but they always make it with the vanilla ice cream. Yeah. They put the Oreo crushed Oreos and the and this is their flavor they came up with. I didn't come up with it. Yeah. But I've gone to different ones and they're like, No, we don't make that one. And I'm like, Do you have coffee? And they're like, Yeah. I said, Do you have Oreos? Yeah. Do you have Hershey syrup? Yeah. I said, You can make it.
1: Yeah.
0: And even if you make it wrong, it can't be that wrong. Yeah. Just make it. <laughs> I don't know what kind of coffee they're doing. I guess it's instant coffee. I don't know what they're putting in it. So
1: I make coffee toffee and to get the coffee into the ice cream, what you do is once you've got your mix, I usually have the mix without the egg yolks and then I heat that up to like 120 Fahrenheit and I'll put a a cup of coffee, you know, coffee you'd put in a coffee maker. Mm -hmm. Take it off the stove, put a lid on it, and let it steep for like 25, 30 minutes. And then use one of those stainless steel strainers. And I, the coffee settles pretty easily. So if, you, if you're if you gentle pouring the mix out of the pot, you can usually g- get most of the crystals down at the bottom. But right. I do pour it through a strainer. But the coffee just steeps in the mix.
0: You don't put espresso in it? No. I do like the coffee ice cream.
1: I'll have to make you some coffee toffee.
0: Yeah. I'll, I'll probably put chocolate on it. Now make me coffee with Oreos in it. I
1: can put do that too. No,
0: make it mud. Make a mud. There you go. I told you my favorite. All is right, Mud pie. Mud pie is my favorite. All right. All right. we done, Grant? Push all the buttons. <laughs>